What makes a bad fantasy team bad? I'll ask Ray Murphy, co-general manager and columnist at BaseballHQ.com, next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, July the 6th. It's show number 24 of the 2018 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we have another great Friday full edition for you. We'll have our feature interview with Ray Murphy, co-general manager and columnist at BaseballHQ.com, discussing his bad tout mix team, tools to use in roster management, trends and responses in the game, his boons and banes, and more. We'll have player news from the National League with Harold Nichols looking at the returns to action of Johnny Cueto, Erodis Vizcaino, and Christian Yelich. And from the American League, Jock Thompson looks at Glaber Torres going to the DL, Garrett Richards coming back from the DL, and more. We'll also have our commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business, in the Minor League Minute. Baseball HQ Minor Leagues Analyst Rob Gordon reports on Cincinnati right-handed pitching prospect Hunter Green. And in our frequent flyer commentary, Baseball HQ Analyst Alex Becky looks at Milwaukee second baseman Nate Orff. Later in the show, I'll have our weekly talk with Todd, asking Todd Zola about go-to metrics for hitters and pitchers. And finally, in Master Notes, I'll have the June Quiz. It's another Big Friday show. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? We had a game this week where the pitcher, the catcher, the batter, and the on-deck hitter were all catchers. We got to talk some baseball. Yes, in the top of the 16th inning in Tuesday's Rays-Marlins game, the Rays scored five runs to bust open a 4-4 tie. It had been one of the Rays' notorious bullpen games, so the team had burned through four relievers going through the first nine innings, plus Sergio Romo, Ryan Stanek, and Vidal Nuno in extras. With their comfortable lead, the Rays called upon backup catcher Jesus Sucre to mop up. Sucre gave up three straight ground ball singles, bringing up Miami catcher Brian Holiday, who had entered the game in the 13th as a pinch hitter and stayed in to catch. He came to the plate with first baseman JT Realmuto on deck, but Realmuto had started the game catching. So at that very moment, you had catcher Sucre pitching to catcher Wilson Ramos with catcher Holiday batting and catcher Realmuto on deck. If you're keeping score at home, Holiday hit a sack fly which ended Sacru's pitching stint. Closer Jose Alvarado came in, gave up a run on a ground out, walked a guy, and finally got Cameron Mabin to ground out and end the game. A tip of the hat to Max Meyer on Twitter for the story. He's at at the Max Meyer, M-U-I-E-R. And in the first inning of this Friday News and Comment Edition, part one of our feature expert interview with Ray Murphy, co-general manager and columnist at BaseballHQ.com. Ray, welcome to Baseball HQ Radio. Thanks for having me, Patrick. Happy mid-season. Yeah, we're coming up to the uh, All-Star break just past the 4th of July. Hope you had a good uh, time over your national holiday. Uh, How are your teams doing? I'm having a pretty good season. It's, you know, way too early to be declaring victory on anything, of course, but I've got most of my teams in contention, uh, a few that are even sitting in first place for the very little that that's worth at this time of year, but it seems like I'm going to have a uh, 
busy second half of trying to take down some titles. So that's uh, that's pretty much uh, all I can ask for at this point. Interestingly enough, though, Ray, in your GM's office column at BaseballHQ.com, you recently wrote about the team that's not doing well, your Tout Wars Mixed 15-team league team, which you stated uh, was a dumpster fire. First, uh, what was the genesis of this idea for writing a column about a bad team? Yeah, like I said, my overall portfolio is pretty good, and this Tout Wars team is you know, the, the one outlier, the one... Like I said, the one dumpster fire, the one team that never got off the ground. And, you know, even though things are going pretty well, it's kind of been sticking in my crawl a little bit. Uh, You know, I I never like to see something go this badly. You know, sometimes a team just kind of settles in the middle of the pack and, you know, just never really makes a run. And, you know, that's that's sort of one category of failure. But, you know, this one, you know, sunk like a stone right from opening day and has not moved. And that's, uh, you know, it's a bit of an unusual experience for me. It's kind of embarrassing. And, you know, like I said, it's been stuck in my craw a little bit. And then I saw a tweet from uh, Brad Evans at Yahoo that said something about, you know, his biggest complaint with the fantasy industry being people, you know, taking too much time to tout their successes without enough, you know, to acknowledge or own their failures. And, you know, the the synapses sort of all fired as I read that and thought about my tout worst team. And I'm like, you know, I need to, you know, spend some time, you know, marinating in that dumpster fire and, you know, spending, uh, you know, feeling the pain and absorbing it and trying to figure out what went wrong there. And, you know, but before I spend the rest of the summer focusing on the good teams. So that's, uh, that's what I did in this failure to thrive column. And actually, you could make an argument that a column uh, or an analysis of something that's not going well is probably more useful to a lot of people because most for, the, for most of them, it's not going well either, or not as well as they'd like. Sure, if people made the same bad choices that I did, and you know, I was using our projections when I drafted this team, and you know, our subscribers are presumably using our projections too. You know, somebody may not have the exact same roster, but I bet you a bunch of the names look familiar, and some of the outcomes look familiar. I, I certainly hope that people are, you know, our our customers drafted more like my good teams than my bad teams. But uh, yeah, there is uh, you know any number of positive lessons you can take if you take the time to. Uh, you know, to go through this kind of exercise from team construction failures to strategic failures at the draft table to just, hey, you know, this projection was terrible. And why was that? You know, there's, you know, there's, there's a lot of layers to the onion that you can peel back if you, if you take the time. Well, you mentioned a bad draft. You started your analysis talking about what you called a lousy draft. And I know you've covered this before. So without taking up uh, the next hour, what went wrong with your draft in the big picture? You know, it started right from the beginning, you know, at a really high level. I went pick by pick through it in this article, um, and it's it's not pretty. But the real high level is, like any other draft, you know, there, there were some, you know, flat-out failures. And the flat-out failures of this one due to injury or just poor performance came somewhat on the early end. In the top five rounds, you know, I had both Will Myers and Byron Buxton, both of whom, at least at the time of the writing of this column, were complete zeros. One of the first two closers I drafted was Mark Melanson, who, you know, never even answered the bell for opening day. So, you know, there there were some high-profile misses, but I I think everyone has a few of those at the draft, and those don't necessarily have to be debilitating on their own. But what I found was I only had sort of three categories of players. I had guys who were fine, guys who were, you know, underperforming but within a range of expectations, and then those zeros like Buxton and Myers and Melanson. I didn't have anybody on the other side of the spectrum. The closest thing I could claim to a, you know, an outperformer or a profit center was Sean Manaya, who's been pretty good for a, you know, 14th round pitcher or wherever I took him. But 
you know, there's just not anything there to counterbalance the failures. It's all, you know, as expected or worse and nothing of subs- nothing substantially better than expected. So that adds up to, you know, a bottom two or three team. At the same time, though, Ray, you said it's too easy to blame all this team's woes on your draft because you had a similar draft on an NFBC team that was first in your league at the time of writing 14th nationally in the overall race. A lot of similar players. Uh, is it just at the margins? What were the key differences between the two teams? Yeah, and that's sort of what I ended up spending a good chunk of this article figuring out is, you know, trying to you know sort of dispel the notion that you can lose a league at the, at the draft table. I you know, on the one hand, it's easy to look at that draft from the Tout Wars team that's so bad and say I lost this league at the draft table. But then I pivoted over to my NFBC team, which, as you said, is doing very well, and there were a lot of commonalities there. So if that team's overcome sort of a similar degree of lousy draft, then you can't really say you lost the league at the draft table. The difference, of course, is that I've had some phenomenal run of, you know, we could talk about how much of it is skill versus luck, but some phenomenal run of finding help for the NFBC team in season via fab, which has not been the case in Tout Wars. I've kind of ground the waiver wire to a similar degree, you know, with similar number of transactions in both leagues, but I've hit on a number of nuggets of gold in the NFBC that have sort of compensated for the bad bad draft and have not been as successful in that mining endeavor in Tout Wars, and that's really the biggest reason in the for the standings disparity between the two of them. That's interesting. Could could that have anything to do with the quality of opposition in an experts league team versus your NFBC team, or is, is the NFBC league also a pretty tough contest? I mean, they're both pretty tough contests. It's you know, I, I almost wonder how much of it is my failure, or I think some of it just does go back to the the luck factor, and that if I knew that Brandon Nimmo and Ross Stripling and Nick Barkakis and whoever else, Miguel Andahar, were all going to be as good as they were going to be, I would have chased them harder in every league, not just the NFBC league where I got those guys. And some of it was, you know, different needs for teams or trying to, you know, build, you know, address what I perceived to be different weaknesses. Some of it was, you know, a spread the risk strategy where I was, you know, take, maybe I was picking up Mark Kakis in NFBC and picking up some equivalent guy, but not the same guy in Tout Wars that weekend. And, you know, where the bidding just went differently. You know, there's, there's a lot of variables to it. And yeah, league composition is one of it. I, one of them, I don't necessarily know that how much of it I'd attribute to that, but they are different. You know, they're the same league size. They're 15 team mixed leagues, uh, but obviously they're different owners. And the NFBC guys generally know what they're doing. And unquestionably, the Tout Wars guys are all industry leaders. So, you know, level of competition might be one of the differences, but I think I blame myself more than I blame the competition because if I knew these guys were going to be good, why didn't I go get them everywhere? Well, what I was thinking was you might have known that. Uh that uh, Miguel Andujar was going to be good, but in a in a better caliber of league or an expert's league, he might already have been spoken for. Uh, chances are he wasn't, but uh, you know what I mean, that the, in an expert's league, you might have to be a little quicker on the draw to land those type of guys that you end up getting in a, in a less, um, a less expert league because the experts are going to be more knowledgeable about grabbing them while the, before they even get good. 
Yeah, and you know there are player universe differences too. In that, you know, there are subtly different rules. Like in Tower Wars, you're allowed to pick up guys before they get called up, whereas the NFBC they're out of the player pool until the week they're called up. So you know, the, the Tower Wars is set up a little bit more for the experts to sort of sort of show their knowledge and get out or get out in front and try to be you know a week early on players relative to the NFBC. So there's uh, in that sense there's certainly an element to that that the uh, you know in uh, you know in the NFBC this year Juan Soto was the uh, the famous case where he got called I think the deadline to be eligible in the NFBC is you got to be called up by Sunday at 6 a.m. and I think Soto was called up either on later on the Sunday or on the Monday. So he was up for a full week before anybody was able to bid on him. Um, so, you know, and he had a good first week. He obviously homered in his first game, et cetera. So there was a total feeding frenzy, but you had to be under a rock for, you know, literally six or seven or eight days to not know that Soto was going to be the big prize that week, whereas the more liberal tout rules would have allowed, I don't remember exactly what happened with Soto, whether he was drafted and held or whether he got picked up before the call-up, but, you know, there wasn't that same level of restriction. You could have gotten him earlier if you wanted him. There are also reserve list differences, I imagine, and uh, strategic differences when you're thinking about how you're going to run your reserve list that could result in certain players being on uh, reserve lists coming out of draft and therefore never eligible, as you mentioned. You said that the success of your team's pickups in the NFBC, which were pretty good, uh, involved plenty of luck. But I thought when I read that that it seems like making shrewd pickups in a fab league might even be more of a skill than the draft itself because you've got this blind bidding aspect to it, and that involves trying to figure out where everybody stands with their budgets, with their needs, with their positions, with their stats, with their categories, all these kind of things. Uh, what about your pickups was skill, do you think, and what what about it was luck? So, I mean, if I knew these guys were going to be as good as they were, I should have bid a lot more for them, right? I mean, Marcakis and Andohar, I think I picked them both up in, you know, within the first week or two of the season. Uh, and Marcakis I grabbed literally because the only thing you can say for sure about Marcakis is he's going to get at bats. He was playing every day. He was batting, you know, fourth or fifth in Atlanta. And, you know, when, when I'm right. I had somebody on my roster who was hurt, and I, I was literally just looking for, you know, a few weeks of an at-bat band-aid until, you know, some breakout guy emerged or somebody with a higher ceiling. And lo and behold, Marquegas is hitting 330 with, you know, double-digit home runs or whatever it is. If I if I knew I was buying that, I should have bid, like, 750 out of my $1,000 budget for him, right? But I instead, I bid, a, like, 15 out of a thousand and got him and you know so in that sense you know same thing with Brandon Nimmo or Ross Stripling who have been fantastic if I knew what I was getting you know I I, I should have bid for them more aggressively and in every league I, I've been on Stripling because I thought he was going to be you know in the rotation for a little while and the dot with the Dodgers in between Kershaw and Hill injuries and I thought the Dodgers were going to be a good team and you know the NL West is a pretty good place to pitch outside of Coors it was environmental factors as much as it was anything about you know liking stripling skill set you know I thought he would be a five inning starting pitcher who you know probably wasn't gonna get that many wins because of that but like I said the environment was decent the team was decent so you know I took a fairly low low cost flyer on him and the returns have been you know far out of size with what I thought I was buying. So, you know, maybe maybe you could tell me that's just me being humble, but, you know, I don't think I'm actually as smart as that. those pickups make me look. <laughs> 
another thing I was wondering about was, uh, as far as the luck element goes, is sometimes we've all had the experience of seeing a guy coming into the league or seeing a guy in the free agent pool that really piques our interest, and you just have no place on your roster for him because whatever position he plays, you're pretty set in that position. And you don't want to waive a guy who's performing well to get a guy who's going to perform well in your estimation. Did that enter into it at all as far as uh, just the availability of a slot rather than the availability of a player? Sure. And in some sense, you know, you were talking earlier about the different player universes. It should have been easier to, you know, find space for players in the bad Tout Wars League because Tout Wars has unlimited DL spots, which kind of kind of gives you more bench flexibility. You don't have to carry uh, as one of your reserves an injured guy the way you do in the NFBC. But, you know, there are guys, you know, this is a particularly painful time of year for that, it f- seems to me, because I feel like I look around every night and you see unexpected performances of guys you don't own, and you're like, I knew that was coming. Why don't I own that guy? Uh, you know, Jock Peterson's a great example of that. I, I actually did own him in a couple of leagues this April because I was pretty bullish on him having a nice comeback year. I believed in the contact improvements he showed late last year and in the postseason. He's got a nice write-up in his forecaster box. And as it turned out, in April, even though I drafted him in a couple of teams, I, I didn't hold him because the playing time wasn't there right away. And, you know, that has since changed with the Seeger injury. You know, Taylor got out of center field, and that opened up time time there for Peterson, et cetera. And Peterson's now got, what, 15 home runs and, you know, is you know validating everything I thought about him in the offseason. But I wasn't patient enough to reap the benefits. So, you know, those kind of things, you know, they certainly do happen either because, you know, in the heat of in the heat of battle in season, you forget about some of your off-season perspectives or sometimes the roster fit is, just isn't there like you say. But, you know, in some sense, you know, the uh the surprises like the Marquecas are canceled out by the good moves I didn't make on, you know, I could have picked up Jock Peterson when I picked up Marcakis, and you know, I, I, in some sense, I might feel better about having Peterson because be like, oh yeah, I totally saw that coming. I didn't see Marcakis coming. You also talked with two veteran HQ staffers about how the big impact free agent pickups in mixed leagues get rostered in only leagues. Uh, specifically, you asked Doug Dennis and Phil Hertz, who play in the National League only uh, leagues in labor and tout about Ross Stripling and Brandon Nimmo and when they got rostered, how they got rostered, why they got rostered. What did you find out about that? Yeah, so those guys, I was fishing around to see what those guys' impact had on those leagues because I was kind of being conscious of the fact that I'm writing from a, you know, mixed league perspective. You can call it shallow or deep or whatever, but it's a it's a, it's, it's a healthy player pool with a healthy reserve list that, you know, there's help available in free agency every week. If somebody gets hurt, you can go find someone to replace them. The challenge is picking the right guy or the guy the guy who hit three home runs this week isn't necessarily the guy who's going to have plenty of time going forward or you don't want to buy guys at the, just as they're cooling off. You know, there's all sorts of, you know, strategy to it in a mixed league, but in an only league, you know, I joked in the column about a bidding worth when Andrew Romine comes off the DL and, you know, it's just a different environment where anybody who's getting any kind of playing time is going to get rostered and you're staring at backup catchers for your utility spot and it's it really is an apples and oranges sort of thing so i wanted to check in with phil and doug about the nl only experience with those guys and it seemed like nimmo and stripling's owners were doing well those guys had not turned the league upside down on their own but phil in fact himself had stripling and had made a pretty big trade 
giving away some other pitching to fortify his offense because Stripling was, you know, putting him in a pitching where he had in a situation where he had pitching to burn. So, you know, those things, you know, sort of need time to play out too. And Phil may, uh, Phil Phil's not sitting here saying that Stripling won him the league when I asked him in mid-June, but, you know, if that trade works out, then, you know, that may very well be the story by the end of September. It's, uh, there's, there's more, uh, there's more story to be told there. Am I correct in remembering that at least one of Stripling or Nimmo was actually rostered at draft as a reserve round pick in the, in the NL only? I believe that was right for, um, all four of the guys, they were both either $1 pickups or uh, had been in, in the reserves and eventually called up. I don't believe any of them, you know, two leagues each for Nimmo and Stripling. I don't think either any of them had hit fab. I thought it was an interesting point when you talked about Phil picking up Ross Stripling, uh, realizing that he's got a bit of a, of a lightning in a bottle gold strike there and then taking advantage of that by moving some of his existing pitchers. Uh, it, it put me in mind of the idea that maybe when we're looking at our fab selections relative to what I said earlier about I don't have a slot for this guy, maybe the approach should be you always have a slot for a talented player because it gives you flexibility in adjusting your roster by making trades or, or in, especially by making trades, but in other ways as well. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And the thing that I think I liked, you know, it's funny, I, the thing I think I liked the most about what Phil did was that he was creative in exploiting the market perception of those pitchers. You know, the the more direct path would be to pick up Stripling or, you know, to call up Stripling from your reserve le- roster, acknowledge that you've got lightning in a bottle there and try to sell high on him, right? But he didn't do that. He went out and sold, I think it was Strasburg and another really good pitcher instead. Um, in one deal for like two or three big hitters. And he capitalized on the name recognition and the value of Strasburg on the market while saying to himself, hey, I've been watching Stripling for a few weeks. If I believe in that, I can trade Strasburg and his market value and hang on to Stripling, who doesn't have the same market value, but I believe can approximate what Strasburg is giving me and get much more in the way of hitting in return for it, which I thought was a pretty savvy way to go about it and feeds directly into the point you were just making. I, I agree. I think that's a that's a very interesting way of looking at it for Phil Hertz. Uh, he's a smart player, and he has to accept – He's, that he's accepting more of the risk with Ross Stripling than he gives away with Strasburg, who's a more defined commodity. Of course, no pitcher is a defined commodity, as we know. But in return, if he gets hitters, they are more defined commodities, a little a little less risky, a little more certain, especially if they're quality hitters, as it turns out that he got. Yeah, well, I'm trying, I don't remember the exact deal, but uh, I know he gave him Strasburg and another pitcher, and he got three hitters, and one of them was Eugenio Suarez, who's been fantastic. So, you know, he may have even been buying high on Suarez, but again, if you're selling, you know, the the, the market name, um, you know, reputational value of Strasburg and turning it into a buy high on a, guy, a hitter you believe in like Suarez, we had a fat and fluke deep dive on him a couple of weeks ago where he checks, you know, he really checks out, and it looks like what he's doing is for real. So Phil is, uh, Phil is very much operating... Uh, based on you know HQ values here he's he, he's practicing what we're preaching so uh, I'm hoping it goes well for him 
You concluded the article by saying that if you can find more real assets in season than the losses you suffer from your drafted roster, you're going to be in good shape. How correct am I in thinking that that does seem to be much more applicable to shallow formats like a 15 mixed with its deep free agent pools than in single league formats, where, as you said earlier, bidding wars are breaking out for guys like Andrew Romine? Yeah, there's certainly an element to that. I mean, I, I think even the you know amount of recovery I've done in the NFBC league, the 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 volume of guys I've got to replace that that bad draft, I think is you know sort of an outlier on its own. Uh, you know, the Tower Wars might be an outlier in the fact that I've sort of gotten no help there. But yeah, it's you know it, it's tougher to find the help in the only leagues, absolutely. But it's tougher for everybody. So. You know, if you get some of the help, as we saw in talking to Doug and Phil about their experiences, if some of the help for guys who get hurt or guys who aren't returning value comes from, you know, some savvy reserve picks, guys that you stashed away in March and by May are helping you out, and then, you know, you find, you know, relative, you know, it's, it's a relative game, right? You don't have to find all the help. You just have to find more help than your opponents. And if there's less help to be had in FAB, but you get more than your fair share of it, you know, the principle should still apply. In a previous GM's office column, you said you noticed something interesting about your own fab behavior in two different leagues because of the way that they stratify or organized the fab budgets. You have a league with a 100-unit budget and most leagues with 1,000-unit budgets. Simple arithmetic says the bids in the 100-unit budget should be a tenth of the bids in the 1,000-unit budget, but it didn't work out that way for you. How did it work out? Yeah, it was funny. I was... Well, you know, kind of reflecting in late April as I was sort of struggling that in that article, I was sort of struggling through the process of getting to know my various teams and getting a feel for the league, the league and how they were going to play out and what each team needed and, you know, sort of groping in the dark and fab in the first few weeks. And what I found in the labor mixed league, which is the sort of the only one I play in that is fab units based on a hundred rather than a thousand was that I was being really conservative with my bidding there and you know perhaps overly so i was getting outbid for basically everyone i went after in the first few weeks and it was i i think really in my mindset i was thinking that you know 100 units is a lot less to work with than a thousand and i really probably shouldn't feel that way but you know that i I think i was sort of indicting myself for getting trapped by you know a you know order of magnitude difference in fab that you know in the grand scheme of things doesn't matter at all but i was sort of treating it based on, you know, one of those, you know, how my wallet feels kind of thing versus, you know, what your actual financial situation is. It's, uh, you know, so I, I have tried to correct that consciously since the, uh, since, since I wrote that article and I've been tr- trying to throw around that fab money and that labor league a little bit more and, you know, remains to be seen if I've done so successfully. But that was, uh, you know, luckily, you know, identifying that three, four, or five weeks into the season, whenever I wrote that column, is still uh, still some time to correct course and change the behavior. In the comments after that story, Ray, uh, Baseball HQ staff analyst Christopher Olson made a comment I thought was interesting, which had to do with the Vickery method. Uh, m- maybe you could explain for people who are not certain what uh, Vickery means and, and what Chris's point was about it and how it, how it affects your willingness and ability to make accurate bids. Yeah, so Vickery is basically set up so that when you make a, a fab bid, the you can bid, you know, at a thousand dollar budget, you can bid, you know, say you want to bid five hundred dollars on a player, that's fine. But the amount you will actually be charged is the amount of the second highest bid plus one. So if I bid five hundred on a player 
and the next bid is 250, then my fab will only be debited 251. And it's intended to be sort of a you know fairer way to you know to, to manage fab and you know uh, generate a little more aggression in fab bidding, but have the the actual charge cost be relative to what the um, you know sort of what the rest of the league have have a component of what the rest of the league thought of the guy as opposed to you. Um, and, and Chris's point was basically that, you know, he gets more aggressive early in the season because, you know, Vickery sort of, and the reason that we use Vickery and Tout Wars for a number of years, and we ended up getting rid of it. And I think the reason why goes to sort of the negative side of what Chris was saying is that Chris tended to bid aggressively and sort of use the rest of the league's interest to sort of validate his own. And if he bid aggressively on a player and ended up paying up to his full Vickery price for the player, well, hey, he's okay with that because that means that other people sort of had the same read that he did or other people were validating his interest in the player and he could bid more aggressively. And if it turned out that the interest in the rest of the league wasn't there, he would get a good percentage of his money back, which ends up serving, you know, I think Chris literally used the word crutch in his comment. And that's exactly what Vickery ends up doing if you use it that way. And I think that's why Tout Wars got rid of it because, you know, we're, in t- we're interested in the experts who are participating in those leagues not having crutches. I didn't understand the logic of it then, and I don't understand it now. I thought, to me, Vickery makes a lot more sense because you should be trying as best you can to emulate the valuations that you would do if the players were all in a room at a table bidding on these guys. And if everybody else at the table stopped their bidding at nine units, you wouldn't go 312, you know, because there would be right, no I agree to. with you. And, and yeah, I, I tend to agree with you, and I actually do miss the Vickery bidding, and I I, I prefer that, and I, I'm just speculating. I don't remember the uh, the the Towers uh, Rules Committee what their justification was for getting rid of it, but I'm guessing that the way, you know, in some sense, the way Chris is using it is, is exactly the way it's intended, and in some sense, yeah. you know, some people may see that as you know a, a bug, not a feature. I guess that's the debate we're having. I think the reason that it was got rid of is because somebody complained and then there was a big discussion and more people who didn't like it uh, than did like it. And that's how the that's how the, the rules committee finally made their decision. But uh, just to wrap up the, the, the whole idea, the reason I liked it wasn't so much because I could bid aggressively or not aggressively. To me, it was an interesting thing for people who are using Tout Wars to calibrate their own fab bidding in their own leagues in that you could check and see what the majority of the league was bidding, and if they were all saying eight, nine, ten dollars, then that would be a baseline that you might say that's what I can expect in my league because that seems to be the worth. But if somebody is bidding three twenty one because they clearly want this guy, then you, as a reader or as a consumer of the news from the league, can say, "I better look into this guy and find out why he's worth three twenty one to Ray Murphy and nine to everybody else." Oh yeah, I, I think that's all exactly right. If I see. Doug Dennis paying three twelve for a reliever in NL Tout. Doug Dennis knows his reliever is cold. I want to darn well go look and see what he's interested in with that guy, even if the next highest bid was nine. I totally agree with you. And to th- to that extent, if you know, as an experts league, if the intent is sort of to get the people's budgets aspect away from it a little bit and get into how much do I value this guy or how badly do I want him? And Vickery gives you a truer sense of what the what the bidder's opinion is of the guy. Yeah, that's the information that as a as an observer of the league I would want to see. 
To wrap this up, Ray, if we were to look at a successful team in the mixed 15 format, what percentage of success do you think is due to the draft and what percentage is due to in-season management? You know, that's a sort of sort of a uh, timeless question and it's one I always try to answer every off season. Uh, there's a, you know, I, I've talked before about how much I rely on Rotolab for my drafts and Rotolab has an awesome feature where at the end of the season, uh, Merv will publish a list of values in Rotolab that are the actual year-to-date end-of-season values rather than the projected values you use in season. So if you take the that end-of-season file and map it back to the way your league looked at the uh, coming out of your draft, you can sort of get a standings reflection for how the actual standings would have turned out based on everyone's rosters when they left the draft table and then you can see like i drafted the sixth best team and i finished third i improved my team during the season that much or i drafted the fourth best team and i finished ninth i did a bad job in season so i always like to look at that and that's since i've been looking at that for a number of years that's what makes me think that what's going on with my nfbc team this year is an outlier because it is awfully unusual to see I would guess that I drafted a team that is in the bottom half of that league in terms of drafted value, and it's in first place now, and if it stays there, I've been watching that you know, in my own leagues for a number of years, and I can't say that I've ever seen that happen before, so you know, not a huge sample size. You know, I only do it for my own teams each year, but you know, in a handful of teams every year for I've been doing that for four, five, six years now, I think that's pretty unusual, but you know, I, I guess the, the overall point back to your question is the, I think there's a sort of an expected range of, you know, how much you can move your team, team up or down in season. And, but did, my my experience this year between Tout and the NFBC is is sort of illustrating that, you know, there may be an expected, expected range, but there may also be, you know, you can't rule out the, uh, the outlier outcome either. The, uh, you know, it might be that you can move up you know, the, the expected band or the first standard deviation is three spots or four spots or whatever it is, but that still means that, you know, two and a half percent of the time or whatever the second standard deviation is, you can move 10 places or whatever that is. And I think that might be what I'm seeing this year. But again, it's only midseason. I'm not declaring victory anywhere yet. Well, it's a really interesting theoretical discussion to have, and it's really important to, to anybody who wants to be consistently successful to understand these relative relationships. Uh, Ray, it's been interesting so far. Can you hang around, maybe uh, take a seat on the bench and uh, get a breather and come back into the game a little later? Absolutely. I'm going to go down to the clubhouse and watch some film. Call me when you need me. Ray Murphy is co-general manager and columnist at BaseballHQ.com, and he'll be back a little later in the show. Coming up, our Market Watch reports on player news from the National League and the American League next on Baseball HQ Radio. Gibson swings and a fly ball to deep right field. This has got to be a home run. Unbelievable. A home run for Gibson. And the Dodgers have won the game 5-4. to four. I don't believe what I just saw. I don't believe what I just saw. Is this really happening, Bill? It is happening, and they've got to help him home. The third-place coach, uh, Joe Malfitano, had to give him a little push, and all the Dodgers are around home plate. I don't believe what I just saw. One of the most remarkable finishes to any World Series game. 
a one-handed home run by Kurt Gibson, and the Dodgers have won it five to four. I am stunned, Bill. I have seen a lot of dramatic finishes and a lot of sports, but this one might top almost every other one. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our Market Watch Player News Reports. Jock Thompson is on deck with the American League. And leading off, it's the National League Report and our old friend, Baseball HQ analyst, Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you, Patrick. Always good to be here. Lots going on this week. Indeed, a lot of uh, early in the season, a lot of uh, DL work, uh, people going on the DL. Of course, now they've been on it for a while. We're starting to see some of them coming back. And in San Francisco, uh, one of the guys who came back from the DL was Johnny Cueto, who had a start on Thursday night. Didn't go that well. No, it didn't go that well. He, he uh, had kind of a rough outing, five innings pitched, ten hits, five earned runs, two walks, two strikeouts. Uh, important maybe to note that three of those uh, those runs in the first eight, four runs in the first inning, three of them in a um, one home run. So maybe not all that bad overall, 76 pitches. His velocity was down a little. But uh, remember, Cueto has missed uh, 58 games, uh, a total of uh, 13 starts in terms of, of what he's missed of the season. And came into that that uh, start last night with a three and zero record and a ridiculous zero point eight four ERA uh, and a one fifty batting average against uh, going into the game. Now, obviously, not that giving up ten hits in five innings, you know. So a, a bit of a rough return, but uh, but maybe everything's okay. Velocity was down a little bit. Uh, need to keep an eye on that going forward. But his his rehab went very very well, uh, and so maybe it's just a, a matter of a, a lot of rust uh, coming off eventually. Rehab seven point two innings over two starts, uh, and so. Uh, was on a pitch count, obviously, last night and likely to stay there maybe for a start or two. The return of Cueto can't be good news for Derek Holland as far as his chances of staying in the rotation. No, Derek Holland is, uh, has been told that he's moving to the bullpen. Uh, a little surprising, actually, in light of it. He has an excellent uh, 3.58 XERA and a 10.5 DOM in, uh, in his five June starts. Uh, but the most recent outing was a PQS disaster on July 1st. Uh, coming at kind of a bad time. Uh, Holland does have 24 relief appearances over his 10-year career and uh, hasn't been all that great in those relief appearances. 5.4 Dom, 1.49 Whip. Uh, so uh, it'll be one of those things to see who stays in the rotation and who doesn't, but Holland gets the initial chance to go to the bullpen. And they have uh, Jeff Samarja coming back uh, shortly. Right, they do, and he should be back soon, and that's going to, of course, uh, create another bit of a log jam in the, uh, uh, in the Giants' rotation. And uh, that story was covered for Baseball HQ's Playing Time Today by Rob Carroll, doing a great job there. Also back from the DL, Nick, uh, the Atlanta Braves closer, Aradis Vizcaino, had a shoulder issue. He was reinstated from the 10-day DL, and uh, that was earlier this week. Uh, that was a short stint, though. It wasn't anything too serious. No, it wasn't. He missed the minimum DL time. Uh, before getting hurt, he had a 1.82 ERA, but XERA over, over two runs higher than that. And BPV was 89, so a little bit lower than the 100 we'd like to see for a closer. Um, clearly, the closer job in Atlanta is his to lose, uh, but there's some warts, so we need to, to uh, be aware of the possibility that he could lose that, that closer job. I mean, the, the Braves are playing well and certainly can't take too many blown saves. Uh, he appeared on Wednesday night, pitched one inning. Uh, it was basically uneventful. 
no strikeouts, no walks, and it was not a safe situation. More good news uh, on the injury front in Milwaukee, where outfielder Christian Yelich had been on the DL with a back problem. He was back in the starting lineup on Wednesday night, uh, 4th of July, and batting second, so that's good news. That is good news. He left the game on June 28th early with back tightness, and then on July the 3rd, he came back as a late-inning defensive replacement. The likely paying time loser in that situation is Ryan Braun. Um, Braun was on the bench for the July 4th game with Yelich, uh, uh, in the lineup. So uh, maybe his bat come alive in May after kind of a slow start. He's showing skills and production that were very similar to those he had in his prior seasons with Miami. Uh, though his current contact rate and I represent career lows, even though he's got a career high uh, hard contact index and XPX. So, uh, you know, one of those things where he's off to a bad start. We see some, some bad things, but also a lot good going on. And certainly Yelich could break out a bit in the second half. Still more good news on the injury front in Arizona. The outfielder Steven Souza, who had been on the DL with a pectoral muscle injury, was activated, and they uh, put outfielder Gerard Dyson on the 10-day DL. He's got a strained right groin, so uh, on the surface of it, you'd think, well, this is a fairly straightforward thing. One outfielder goes on the DL, another one comes off, no problem. But as far as Arizona's uh, outfield situation is concerned, it's still kind of a logjam even with this change. It is. It's getting to be a real log jam in the Arizona outfield. Uh, this is the second trip to the DL for Souza. It cost him 39 games, uh, and he comes back into action with, with, if you can believe this batting line for Steven Souza. Uh, no home runs, one RBI, 163 batting average, and 43 at-bats. And you, you have to look at that and go, huh? But uh, just in the 14 games he played, he couldn't get started, couldn't get anything going, only got hits in five games and didn't show the power that he displayed in his past three years where he had an average 132 power index. So um, that creates a logjam in a three-way battle kind of for corner outfielded bats with John Jay and with David Peralta. Uh, Jay, you may remember, was acquired from Kansas City when Susan went down for the second time. And Jay hit 333 in his first 15 games, looked like he'd become a fixture, but since then he's tallied one single in his last 34 at-bats. So uh, uh, he's kind of fallen off the map for the moment. Uh, but Paul Goldsmith struggles. Peralta's been the most reliable regular in the lineup, uh, leading the, the, the Diamondbacks in hits and batting average. So manager Troy Lovello say he has about 15 lineups in his head. He doesn't want to sit any of the outfielders for more than several games in a row. Uh, and what that could mean is he may even start uh, seeing more days off for, uh, for uh, A.J. Pollock as he tries to rotate all of these guys through the outfield. So uh, it's a real logjam. Primarily at this point, uh, Peralta and Jay are going to see the playing time loss from uh, Susan's return, but uh, still could be a lot of shuffling going on as the manager tries to figure out who's hot and who's not in any particular week. And I mentioned Gerard Dyson goes on the DL. That's not supposed to be a very long situation, probably just a 10-day minimum. And when he comes back, it gets even more kind of complicated for Arizona it does indeed. I mean, you know, if you've got a log jam now, then you put Dyson back into the mix, and that that makes it uh, even more complex. So uh, it'll be interesting to see how Troy Lovello decides to play this uh, as he begins to get a feel for all of these outfielders back that he hasn't had for most of the season, uh, and trying to figure out what's the best of those fifteen lineups that he can put into any particular game. 
Uh, Rob Carroll on the story for Playing Time today says that the uh, Playing Time projection is Pollock gets more than his fair share, but the rest of it seems to be divided pretty much equally among all those guys, which kind of helps some of their value and kind of hurts others. Yeah, it does. It's you know it's one of those things that uh, uh, as a as a fantasy owner you don't know exactly what to do. Peralta is certainly a good uh, a good fantasy bet at this point because he's hitting well, but uh, you expect Sousa to break out, but you never know. Uh, so it's one of those guys. And Jay, of course, is no great shakes other than uh, batting average. And if you can't, uh, if Jay and Jay can't get the hits, then uh, he's pretty well worthless in a fantasy lineup. You know, and another thing is that uh, this kind of situation, often the manager will say, well, we'll just rotate the playing time around. But it's difficult to do that because you can't carry that many outfielders on a modern roster because, of course, they all got 17 pitchers that they have to uh, keep on hand. So uh, typically now you have a, a spare catcher, a spare infielder, and one spare outfielder, not three spare outfielders. Something's got to give here. And uh, you know what I'd be looking for at this point is I'd watch all these guys and see if any one of the kind of secondary guys outside of Pollock start showing a hot hand in any regard, stealing some bases, getting a few hits, somebody gets, you know, three home runs in six days or something like that, because it could be that what the manager, Tori Lavallo, is waiting for is not for, uh, uh, you know, the situation to just settle itself, but for somebody to step up and take the job. Yeah, that indeed could be what could be what could happen and what they could be looking for. The other thing to think about when Gerard Dyson comes back is uh, Dyson is a really good guy to have on the bench to insert at the right time in a game in a pinch running situation. Uh, Dyson's problem has never been stealing bases. He steals them almost at will. His problem is getting on getting on first base. And so if you've got a guy like that on your bench, that may be a real good thing. You could save him for that situation late in the game where you've got a guy on first and you want to get him in scoring position. So uh, Dyson may see himself used more frequently, I would guess, in that kind of situation. Yeah, and maybe a little late-inning defensive help he can really run, as we know, and that uh, that helps when you're trying to play the outfield for sure. Uh, finally, one of our favorite columnists at BaseballHQ.com, seems like we talk about him all the time, is Buyer's Guide columnist Stephen Nickrand, who writes about both hitters and starting pitchers. And uh, this week, in his Starting Pitcher Buyer's Guide column, he's looking at players who had really good months of June and were supported in those good performances by elite skills. And one of the names that popped up on that starting pitcher list, Philadelphia starter Zach Eflin. You know, Zach Eflin, you know, surprising. Uh, dra- when he was drafted, drafted probably as an afterthought, you know, who can I pick up in this round of my draft? His uh, ADP was 456, so certainly way, way down the line. But at this point, Zach Eflin has a 3.02 ERA, a 1.13 whip after 10 starts, and some really strong skills to go along with them, a 117 BPV, and very, very strong skills in the month of June. Uh, 8.2 DOM, 1.8 control, 42% ground ball rate, uh, a good swinging strike weight, a good first pitch strike rate. Uh, the guy really looked good in June and maybe on the verge of a breakout. A 3.9 command against both left-handers and right-handed hitters, so... Uh, it looks like his, his skills say he could continue this current strong run that he's on, and he's still sitting out there in, in some in some leagues. So if Zach Eflin's out there in your league, time to take a long look. Yeah, I think we're getting to the point after June that if Zach, uh, Zach Eflin is available in your league, you maybe need to find a stronger league. Yeah, I think so. I, he's the kind of guy that should have disappeared uh, probably the last week of June or certainly the first week of July. But... Uh, you know, you never know. He may still be sitting out there and guys overlooking because he's not a big name. 
So if guys aren't really paying attention, not somebody you're going to take a look at. And that entire column of Stevens, of course, at this point is worth looking at to see who was hot in June and who was not. And the other thing we have to keep in mind is, uh, you know, I play a single league format. I know you play in a mixed league uh, formats and, and single league formats in your experience. But there are some guys out there listening to this show who are playing in 10-team mixed. And in, in formats like that with very, very deep free agent pools, a guy like Zach Eflin, even if he does run off two or three wins in a row and look pretty good, still might not be good enough for somebody to take a flyer on because there's lots of choices if you're in a 10-team mixed. Or I've even heard of guys playing in 8-team mixes right very definitely i mean a, a shallow league uh, you, you know you, you've probably got plenty of pitchers and that's the other thing is there are there are always there are always pitchers out there uh who are who are pitching well at any particular time so i never really panic about my starting pitchers even though i hate it when they go on the dl but uh remember they're always good pitchers and they're always guys suddenly stepping up uh in a time when you don't expect them to so remember that name, Zach Eflin, not only for your league, but uh, later on in the show, uh, could be a helpful hint for the Master Notes June quiz. Uh, and I'll say no more about that. Uh, Nick, thanks very much for helping us out. Catch up with you again next week. All right. Thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst with BaseballHQ.com and our man on the National League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now let's turn to the American League and Baseball HQ Director of News and Analysis, Jock Thompson. Jock, welcome back to the show. Hey, PD. Good to be back. I guess we'll start in uh, the city that never sleeps, New York, New York, the town so nice they named it twice, and I promise that's the last cliche for New York City. Uh, Glaber Torres of the Yankees was off to a tremendous start this year, one of the real great stories of the year, in fact, and now, uh, just like so many other people in baseball, he's on the DL. He's got a strained right hip, and uh, that could be a significant injury, actually, if you think about how much of a role the hips play in uh, hitting and throwing the ball. Uh, He went on the DL on Wednesday. What are the Yankees going to do, and what are Glaber Torres owner is going to do well it's interesting he's not eligible to return until post all-star break and we're getting mixed reports as to how serious this is some some sites are saying he could be out till the end of July um, it, it looks like uh, Brandon Drury and Neil Walker uh, are going to be the the second base subs and and it's interesting because those two were regulars to, to begin the season Drury just was now recalled uh, from AAA uh, his season has been awful. He had some concussion problems and uh, and just hasn't uh, played that much up up in the majors. He was doing very well in AAA, uh, but uh, even right now in the bigs, he's only hitting 188 in 37 plate appearances. Walker's season so far has been a disaster. He's ironically he's hitting the same uh, 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 188 after 188 plate appearances. Um, so interestingly enough, these two starters are are going to be the ones subbing for. Glaber Torres, who actually came up and, and took their, their at-bats away. I don't expect either of these guys to take the job away from Torres, regardless of when he comes back, because Torres was terrific, as we all know. And this was a problem you and I talked about in March. Um, when, we looked, when we were looking at these guys, the Yankees have so much talent. Any blip by Walker or Drury, and uh, they were going to get their jobs taken away, and that's what's happened here. So now they're fighting for at-bats, and uh, While they may be worth flyers now in the interim, um, I sure wouldn't be betting the farm on them. Matt Dodge covered the story for Baseball HQ in Playing Time today. And uh, uh, what do you think, Jock, about the uh, whole Wally Pip angle of this? That uh, the the it sounds like what you're saying is that the entire situation depends on when Glaber Torres comes back because uh, when he does, these other guys are out of luck unless one of them really catches fire. 
Yeah, no, you're right. And and those things always take care of, or usually takes care of themselves, we should say. Um, I just don't think they're going to they're gonna get at bats at the expense of, of, of Glaber Torres. I mean, this is a guy who, who has hit 15 home runs and batted 294 as a rookie. So um, I'll tell you what, uh, I don't think the Yankees are going to send him down, and I think their fans would be rightfully unhappy if they did. In Los Angeles, your poor Angels finally got a little bit of good news. Right-handed pitcher Garrett Richards was activated from the 10-day DL on the 4th of July. He had a hamstring problem, but at the same time, they had to put another guy on the DL. Left-hander Tyler Skaggs goes on the disabled list in a corresponding move. He's got an adductor muscle problem. Uh, gosh, it never rains a bit of pores for these uh, guys at the Angels, hey? Yeah, really. Um, the good news about Skaggs' injury, uh, now he's claiming, he, he and he told reporters this uh, uh, once he went on the DL, it's the same injury that, that took him out of, of the rotation for maybe seven, eight days. It didn't even result in a DA, D, uh, disabled list stint this past April. Um, he expects to come back just before the All-Star break, so um, a, a bit of good news there. But you're right, uh, the Angels have had real problems. Uh, they have Richards back. That's that's good news. Uh um, but they, they're still looking for uh, for Nick Tropiano to, to return. Uh, Shoemaker's been out. They have um, Deck McGuire and Felix Pena holding up those last two spots in the rotation. And uh, it's going to be interesting to see if the Angels can resuscitate their, um, their postseason hopes. Uh, I don't think they can, and they're on fumes right now. Uh, Deck McGuire was a farmhand with the Jays organization, so I'm a little bit familiar with him, and I have to say, Boy, I, I think as a fantasy player, you'd have to be beyond desperate to consider Deck McGuire. Yeah, they pretty much are. Um, um, they've had a, a pretty much a record-breaking injury list this year. If you go down the Angels' deep, uh, disabled list, it's probably, uh, I, I'm sure it's longer than any other major league clubs, uh, and their their rotation has just been decimated. Well, Jock, with all these injuries in the uh, Angels' rotation, when we look from now till the end of the season and consider the possibility of some uh, moves as uh, the team possibly falls out of the race. Uh, what do we see going on here from now, from, we'll say from the all-star break to the end of the season, as far as fantasy assets in the pitching staff in Los Angeles? Well, I think the problem with that is that the, the Angels farm system has just now returned to prominence. Um, they are now 12 games off the wild card pace. So, uh, my guess is that yeah, they're gonna they're gonna inquire as to pitching, but I I don't see a lot of reinforcements coming in. I mean, I could be wrong because I think there's gonna be a lot more sellers than buyers this year, uh, given all of the have-not teams out there that are looking to to dump salary. Um, but I don't see the Angels giving up anything significantly from their their um, uh, minor league system like uh, Jordan Adele, the names that teams are gonna be wanting for for their 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 best assets. Uh, I don't see the Angels giving that up, so um, it, it's it's going to be interesting to see what these next three, four weeks bring. I wasn't thinking of the Angels as a buyer. I was thinking of the Angels as a possible seller of some of the uh, older assets, some of the guys uh, uh, that are commanding big money. This might be an opportunity for the Angels to rebuild and try to finally get a team around Mike Trout. Yeah, I hope you're right. Um, it's funny, their history, they've never played it like that. They've always claimed, ah, oh, we're playing for today. We're going to play it right through to the end. Uh, Artie Moreno and Mike Sosha have always been in, in that mode. Um, if they did what you're suggesting, and, and it's what I think they should do, it, it would be one of the first times they've ever done it. So um, I hope you're right. I think they should be looking toward uh, 2019 because I don't think they have a chance right now. 
In Houston, uh, here's a team that's got obvious playoff aspirations, the defending World Series champions, and they've had a little bit of an injury announcement here. Uh, Brian McCann has been put on the DL. Um, he's had some surgery, and he's going to be gone four to six weeks. How does that affect the uh, World Series champions roster? Yeah, you know, we've been looking at this all all uh, all season long in uh, our playing time today and tomorrow space. Uh, McCann was a risk coming in. This is his second uh, disabled but stint. Uh, due to a due to a knee injury, and the third one since last August. And if you look at his metrics, they're just plunging. He only has a 206 batting average. Um, real question as to how much he's going to contribute down the stretch. Uh, his platoon partner this year, Max Stassi, has been a revelation, at least power-wise, and it, he's actually kept his batting average afloat too. But he only hit 163 in June. Um, right now, um, they they've promoted uh, uh, Danny Feder. I always have trouble pronouncing this this name. Federowitz uh, to um, to uh, be um, uh, McC- uh, not McCann Stassi's uh, platoon partner in McCann's absence. Um, he his career major league batting average is below 200, but he posted a 9.64 OPS through 134 at bats in AAA this season. So there might be some interest there if you're watching it, some short-term interest, maybe an opportunity. I think the Astros ought to take a look at the outside. You've got uh, JT Real Muto supposedly on the market from Florida. I know the Marlins are from Miami. I know the I know the Marlins want a king's ransom for him, and they should get that if they trade him because Real Muto is really good. Uh, I think uh, I think the Astros are one of those few teams that have the resources to land him. Um, this is going to be an, a very interesting, fluid situation to watch over the next two to four weeks in Houston. I have to ask, is there any chance at all they put Evan Gaddis back behind the plate? You know, he only has two games there to date, and they really did not like his defense. It's one of the reasons he's DHing right now. I suppose it could happen, but they're really going to give give a lot up. They're going to basically cede the, a base-running game to their opposition. Um, he's not a very good framer. Uh, I would tend to doubt it. I would tend to doubt it too, but uh, it's just something that if he did manage to get three more games, then all of a sudden he becomes a a lot more useful to a fantasy team because most leagues have that five-game rule that would allow him to maintain some eligibility. Uh, Lots of moves going on in Minnesota of late. Uh, Jorge Polanco, uh, here's a story for you. I drafted Jorge Polanco in the Tout Wars American League draft, and I'm not kidding when I say it was maybe 15 or 20 minutes later that somebody (laughs) walked into the draft room and said, Hey, Jorge Polanco just got suspended for 80 games for PEDs. So it was that kind of year for me, but uh, he's finally back. He, he played the other night. Uh, they've also had Brian, Byron Buxton return from the DL, although he's been sent to Rochester to keep working on a lingering toe fracture. Rick Green covers the Minnesota Twins for playing time today at BaseballHQ.com. Let's start with Jorge Polanco. What's going on with uh, him? I presume he gets right back in the lineup. Okay, well, I'll one-up your story first off, because in my dynasty league, I own Jorge Polanco, Byron Buxton, Miguel Sano, and Irvin Santana, all of whom are part of the problem that that Minnesota has had this year. They're a team that had big expectations going in. Uh, They're a team that, if they haven't thrown in the towel already, they're going to throw in the towel uh, uh, shortly. Um, they were a wild card favorite entering entering March, uh, uh, starting with Polanco's suspension uh, for a for a PED violation. Everything went wrong. He was coming off a great uh, second half uh, last year, and big things had been expected from him. So we're, we're going to see how much of that sticks following the, the PED revelation. I personally like him. He hit from the get go, eight for nineteen, four walks during his rehab. He's made hard contact on his return. Uh, 
not a lot to show for it, four for 14 with a couple of doubles and a couple of walks, but I think he's a good second half uh, grab for fantasy owners if he's still available. I think so too. And uh, the question that arises is, uh, presuming that Sano finds his way back to the infield, uh, Polanco's come back to the infield, what happens with Eduardo Escobar, who's having a really good year? Well, the thing about Eduardo Escobar, if I'm not mistaken, uh, he's going to be a free agent next year. So I wouldn't be surprised if, if the Twins are sellers, if they put him on the block. He has been very good. And the Twins should try to take advantage of that. All right, then what happens with Byron Buxton? Will he come back? When will he come back? Is he going to run when he comes back, considering this toe injury, which I should point out has really slowed down D. Gordon, who hasn't been stealing bases at nearly the pace that he was uh, putting up before he went on the deal with his toe injury. He's back, he's playing, but he's not running as much. Should we expect much the same from Byron Buxton, or do we expect full meal deal? Well, Buxton, uh, he just he, he just hasn't made enough authoritative contact yet, even in his AAA rehab, and that's why the Twins um, made the decision to, to basically activate him and then option him uh, to Rochester. He's only hitting 190. He has 21 strikeouts and 58 at-bats there. Uh, it actually looked like he was on his way uh, after the 2017 second half, uh, hit 306, 12 homers, 15 steals. But, yeah, he started out awfully this year. He had concussions. He had that uh, toe problem. He came back from the DL too early. Uh, he couldn't run. Uh, he's stolen a couple bases uh, so far in his rehab, but that's the only bright spot right now. He's not making a lot of contact. I think he's going to recover. I think he's going to return at some point during the season, but it's tough to rely on him. He's, he's been a, it's been a very disappointing season for a pretty disappointing player so far. I'll tell you what, I was talking about this with somebody else. We were discussing, like, where would you look for stolen bases if you were trying to make a move in the category in the second half? And we talked about Byron Buxton, and I thought it was a pretty uh, interesting conversation because at his best, Byron Buxton's a a stolen base threat and and a genuine provider of steals, which is tough to find in baseball now. But the question then comes... So many people think that Byron Buxton is still going to get something done this year and is going to have a big career, including this year coming up, that you can't really expect to get Byron Buxton on the cheap if that was your plan, getting him uh, getting him for the second half of this season off whoever owns him in your league, because whoever owns him in your league either is going to be one of the people who thinks he's really good and wants to keep him, or one of the people who hears everybody else thinks he's really good and raises the price. No, I would agree completely with that. I'm a Buxton owner, and uh, I'm not going to sell him low right now. He's 24 years old. I saw what he did in the second half. Um, he is, I, I think he will return in the second half of, of this year. I don't know how well he's going to play, um, but, um, I, you know, I, it's it's really the only feasible chance I have to get back in my own league's race. Um, he's just unreliable. You, you, you can't rely on him. You, you keep him, and you hope for the best. I think he went for around $20 in my American League Tout League this year, and I think that was a fairly common price that I saw in various uh, mock drafts and real drafts. He was a kind of a sixth, seventh round guy, maybe a little earlier in some snake drafts. What do you think this does to Byron Buxton's desirability next year's draft? Um, I think it goes down a little bit every year. I mean, let's face it, I, I know in in, uh, in uh, in our ADPs, I think he he was somewhere around forty nine fifty to uh, to, to uh, when the when when the spring ended before opening day this year. 
that's awfully high for what he's done. So I have a feeling he could drop another 50 to 75 points next year. It really depends on how he finishes. But I think uh, fantasy owners playing draft leagues are going to be a lot more leery of Byron Buxton uh, next year. I think so too, Jock, and it's not only going to be because of the inconsistent performance, but I think we have to start looking at Byron Buxton as one of those guys who's a genuine, consistent injury risk. Oh, sure. I would agree with that too. Uh, On the other hand, again, um, we talk about it all the time, practice excruciating patience. It's a 24-year-old, and sometimes patience is very excruciating. (laughs) Isn't that the truth? Uh, Finally, in Detroit, the Tigers closer Shane Green, who has a lot of saves despite some pretty pedestrian kind of numbers, he's on the DL with a shoulder problem. Uh, Joe Jimenez has been named the closer. Tom Kephart covers the story for Baseball HQ's playing time today. Uh, I have to say, I saw Joe Jimenez pitch the other night. He didn't look that good. No, I saw that too. We may have been watching the same game, the one in Toronto where he gave up the two the two walks and then the intentional walk and blew the save. Um, um, maybe we didn't see. I don't know. But anyway, yeah, you're, you're right. I, I I didn't think he 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 looked great. I thought his stuff was good. His command was off. Uh, Green has been effective, like you said, hardly scintillating though. Um, his 4.03 ERA, three three point seven five expected ERA. Uh, almost a 10 dom, which is pretty good, but just a, a 10% swinging strike rate suggests that's a little shaky. I don't think Green is a is a long-term closer. If if uh, Jimenez can improve, he's always been one of these guys who's been projected as a closer of the future type. He has good stuff. He, he could take over this role. That would not surprise me at all, just because I just, you know, I'm not, I'm not a big believer in Green. Uh, but uh, yeah, he's Apparently going to be their closer, and Detroit's not going to get a lot of wins, but um, there you go. There's a couple of other guys who might be in the mix. I saw Blaine Hardy, the left-hander. He got a uh, a save the other night, and there's a guy named uh, Daniel Stumpf, who I've got to say I don't know very much about. Uh, What's the story with those two guys in the saves picture in Detroit? Yeah, I'm looking at Daniel Stumpf's ERA, and his ERA and expected ERA are identical in 6-8 over 19 innings. I don't know much about his history either. Um, I like Blaine Hardy for what he is, but his numbers aren't scintillating either since we're using that word. 3.44 ERA, 4.58 expected ERA. He's a lefty. Uh, I just I don't see the future in those two. I, I, Hardy could pick up some saves. He's pitched very well this year. I, I always look at things from a little longer term perspective, given that I play in dynasty leagues. And uh, I'm, I'm Hardy's owned in my deep league, and I'm not exactly going out to try to get him from the owner. I think Blaine Hardy might be a sneaky good uh, guy to look at because a lot of his poorer performances came when he was a struggling member of the rotation. And when they move move a starter into the bullpen, sometimes good things happen. Uh, look at Mariano Rivera as the uh, prime example. Uh, before I let you go and before we leave the Motor City, uh, Jock, uh, Leonis Martin also goes on the DL, the center fielder. He's been having a really good year as well. And uh, uh, Detroit doesn't have a lot of options in their outfield. No, they don't. Um, I haven't taken a look at that situation yet. I know they have Mikey Matuk uh, back on the roster. It was a big disappointment this year after his second half of last year. He's another player I own that I finally had to cut. Um, he's like 27, 28. He's been a pretty good athlete, uh, has a little pop and a little speed. Uh, but he's he's been so volatile and so up and down and had so many outages for so long. It's just it's another unreliable guy in Detroit. But he's going to get an opportunity, so if that's what you're looking for, have at her. And they also have uh, Jacoby Jones, a guy who can really run, but he has the same problem that you talked about earlier. You can't steal first. 
No, you're right. Uh, he's got a 221 batting average after 280 plate appearances, uh, 652 OPS. There's another guy. I just when you when I when I look at my my dynasty league team long, longer term, I don't think, oh wow, Jacoby Jones. He's struggling right now, but this is a guy in another couple three years who's going to be really good. Yeah, I don't know about that either. His uh, on-base percentage, we play uh, on-base in Tout American League, uh, is well under 300. Uh, so uh, the I hate guys who have this great uh, running tool. Look at Billy Hamilton, for instance, although he's uh, certainly in a different class of base stealer than Jacoby Jones is. But why, if you had all that foot speed, Jock, why wouldn't you learn how to figure figure out a way to get on base take a walk get hit by pitches if you have to lay down a bunt once in a while learn how to place the ball uh, effectively through bunting this drives me crazy and you have a guy with this particular skill and just no inclination or no understanding of how he can best exploit it well you know if i had the answer to that I would be in the Angels' front office, and I wouldn't have to leave the house because that's that's the mystery everyone's been talking about. Why a lot of these athletes can't uh, turn their their extreme physical skills into uh, into baseball skills. Uh, so um, if you if you have any hints, let me know because I would love that job. And I would love to see if there was some way of predicting it or or seeing a guy develop that skill. And it would be one of those things that you'd have to dig into to notice. Because, for instance, if we're talking about Jacoby Jones, if all of a sudden you notice that he maybe picked up four bunt hits in a in a month, four or five bunt hits in a month, and you th- and you started to realize, hey, this guy's learning to be pretty good at bunting. If you spread that out over six months of a full season that's 30 extra base hits 30 extra uh, stolen base opportunities i mean the sky's the limit if this guy could just get on base a little more often but he doesn't draw walks he doesn't get hit by pitches he doesn't uh bunt for hits uh drives me nuts uh jock thanks a million for uh making me all depressed about jacoby jones and i'll talk to you again in a week's time Okay, PD. Jock Thompson is Baseball HQ's Director of News and Analysis and covers the American League beat for us here at Baseball HQ Radio. When we return, our Baseball HQ commentaries, the Minor League Minute and Frequent Flyer are coming up on Baseball HQ Radio, but right now, time in the show when I get to let you know about some of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the Big Hurt, injuries analyst Matthew Cedarholm looks at injuries to Lonnie Chisenhall, Brian McCann, Shane Green, Ahira Edredianza, and an armpit problem for recent Miami call-up Sandy Alcantara. In from A to Zinke, columnist Fred Zinke talks about moving strategically into the All-Star break. And in the Facts and Flukes spotlight, Baseball HQ analyst Greg Pyron digs deep into Cleveland right-handed starting pitcher Trevor Bauer. And those are just three articles among dozens, a small sampling of all the great content you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time. Throw in some excellent roster management tools and you'll know why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our regular HQ Radio commentaries. Coming up, we have the frequent flyer, and leading off, it's the Minor League Minute. And here with a look at Cincinnati right-handed pitching prospect Hunter Green is Baseball HQ Minor Leagues analyst Rob Gordon. The Cincinnati Reds' Hunter Green is finally showing why he was considered the top amateur hurler in the 2017 draft. 
The 18-year-old Green got off to a rocky start this year, going 0-2 with an ugly 14.63 ERA in April, but has been red-hot of late, posting a 2.31 ERA over his last 10 starts, while striking out more than a batter per nine. Green overpowers hitters with a double-plus fastball that sits at 97-100, to topping out at 103 miles an hour. He backs up the heater with a late-breaking slider that shows above-average potential and an average changeup that is a work in progress. The key to Green's dramatic turnaround has been improved control. In five June starts, Green has walked just five batters while striking out 31 in 27 innings pitched. Green had his best start as a pro this week, going seven shutout innings while allowing just two base runners and striking out a career-high 10 batters. The Reds will likely be cautious with their prize prospect, but if Green continues to dominate, it would not be surprising to see him moved up to high A by the end of the season. At 6'4", 215, Hunter Green has the size, the stuff, and athleticism to be a legit number one starter and is a must-own in all Keeper League formats. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon. And by the way, Hunter Green, a really nice color for a den or family room. Another way BaseballHQ.com subscribers get the winner's edge is with comprehensive coverage of the minor leagues. All season long, the BaseballHQ.com scouting team has reports and updates on top prospects, organization moves, daily call-ups, and everything you need to keep tabs on rising stars. This week's prospect coverage includes the fantastically named Milwaukee second baseman Nate Orff. You're going to be hearing a bit more about him in the frequent flyer as well as Miami right-handed pitcher Pablo Lopez, Cuban left-hander Sionel Perez, and in the eyes have it, Baseball HQ scouting analyst Tanner Smith looks at a pair of number six prospects, White Sox outfielder Blake Rutherford and Kansas City outfielder Khalil Lee. These days, knowing the prospects can make the difference in many of our leagues, and Baseball HQ has the prospect tools you can use to make that difference. Now it's time for our frequent flyer comment, where we apply BaseballHQ.com tools to pick out players on whom you might want to take a flyer, because they could be available in your free agent pool and they have the potential to deliver big returns. This week's frequent flyer, as I said, Milwaukee second baseman Nate Orff, and here to tell you more is Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. Back in 2013, undrafted out of Baylor, infielder Nate Orff was reportedly asked by Milwaukee Brewers scout Brian Sankey in a story recently reported by MLB's Adam McCalvey if he would be willing to sign with the Brewers for $1,000. The response from Nate Orff was priceless. He said, heck, I'd sign for a Snickers bar. Call it love of the game or perhaps a love of candy, more specifically a love of Snickers bars, but that response ended up costing Nate Orff $500 when he signed with the Brewers for only $500 rather than the $1,000 he was originally offered. What was omitted in the report, however, was whether he actually got the Snickers bar. Perhaps there's a marketing deal brewing in this story, but that's not the end of the story, only the beginning. With a script maybe not even Hollywood could write, but certainly produce, now 28-year-old Nate Orff was called up to join the Brewers on July 2nd. After going hitless his first two games, Nate Orff vaulted a Jose Barrios curveball deep to left for his first major league hit and his first major league home run. As the crowd in Milwaukee roared, imploring a curtain call, Brewers players Jesus Aguilar and Manny Pena lifted Nate Orff onto their shoulders and carried him out of the dugout to the cheers of the enthusiastic crowd. Hollywood, are you listening? Snickers? 
However, such a special moment shows that Nate Orff, like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered to be a long shot. In this case, a feel-good long shot, who may be worth a flyer if he is still available in your league. Sure, it was a special moment, fireworks on the 4th of July for Nate Orff, but maybe it wasn't completely unexpected. According to the July 3rd edition of Collips on BaseballHQ.com, the undersized infielder has put up great numbers in the past two seasons of AAA despite a lack of hard contact. Indeed, Nate Orff batted 320 at AAA in 2017 and 307 so far in 2018. Plus, he's converted 20 of his 21 stolen base attempts in 2018. Not too shabby. But as it was pointed out in the same July 3rd edition of Call-Ups on BaseballHQ.com, Nate Orff's numbers may look too good to be true. However, stranger things have happened. In other words, he has certainly defied the odds, and your team can too, when you consider adding Nate Orff, our frequent flyer for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky has our frequent flyer comment here on Baseball HQ Radio every week. When we return, part two of our feature expert interview with Ray Murphy, co-general manager and columnist at BaseballHQ.com. That's coming up on Baseball HQ Radio. Here comes Roger Maris. Just standing up, waiting to see if Maris is going to hit number 61. Here's the windup. The pitch to Roger, way outside ball one. And the fans are starting to boo. Low ball two. That one was in the dirt. And the boos get louder. Two balls, no strikes on Roger Maris. Here's the windup. Fastball hit deep to right. Radio. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for part two of our feature expert interview with Ray Murphy, the co-general manager and a columnist at BaseballHQ.com. Ray, welcome back. Hey, you call me from the clubhouse. You're ready for part two here? Ready to go. Uh, Ray, in, in segment one, we talked about the importance of doing in-season work to give your fantasy team the best possible chance of succeeding. Other than simply throwing in the towel, what are the most common errors you think fantasy owners make in trying to do their in-season management? Um, throwing in the towel is a big one. You know, paying attention to football is another big one that you know we start to run into at this time of year. Uh, but to me, I'm always looking, you know, I was thinking in preparation for this about what areas of the site I use a lot in this time of year, you know, especially on the weekends when I am, uh, you know, making my moves and tweaking my rosters. And, you know, it makes me wonder if you know, other people are doing the same thing because I look at some of the traffic patterns on the site and it's not always the same. Um, for instance, I'm, you know, I, I live, tend to live in player link. Uh, I, I feel like I always have that open in my browser, but you know, the, once the sample sizes get to be, decent you know at this time of year and you know we've been there for a month or six weeks already i tend to spend a ton of time on the splits pages i'm always looking at you know the last 31 days and the uh april may june splits right now and now as we go into the second half you know you get the first half second half splits too we split first half second half 
this week, you know, at the, sort of the natural uh, 80 game mark, not the all-star break. So you know, we have an April to June and a July to October split that allows us to, you know, sort of capture some of that stuff. So, you know, really you're always looking for performance changes and, you know, trying to spot, you know, where inflection points were and those splits, those split tabs and those split data are a, uh, a great way to do that. And that's one place where I spend a ton of time. You're the GM of BaseballHQ.com, Ray, and uh, your areas of responsibility include the many tools on the site. You mentioned the split tools. What are some of the others that you uh, think really help fantasy owners do in-season management? You know, one thing that I've been relying on a lot this season, I think we talked about it the last time I was on the show, was our new uh, starting pitching grading tool. Uh, that's I'm actually writing an article about that this week where I am continuing to sort of back test the results of that um i won't give away give that away but the uh the article will be on the site you know within the next couple of days i did a similar exercise at the end of april and the results of that tool were uh looking pretty good and i'm updating that those findings for uh data from the uh from april through june uh, but i've been using that tool a ton as well to you know i thought i'd use it primarily as a dfs tool and I have been using it that way with uh, with some success. You know, my DFS is sort of, I try to make it my wheelhouse, but it sort of just isn't. So I keep uh, banging my head against that wall with, uh, you know, my results are better this year, but I'm still not, you know, doing all that well. But I'm uh, using the tool extensively to pick my starting pitchers there. Uh, but the place I'm using it more than I thought I would is in setting my weekly lineups in... Uh, my full season leagues, and we were talking about my full season leagues before, and those are going pretty well. And I feel like the pitching that I own is sort of outperforming what the staff and aggregate thinks. You know, you would think it would be looking at, and I think picking the right matchups is one reason for that. I've always liked to have benches full of extra starting pitchers so you can tweak based on matchups and chase two-star weeks and sit people in bad matchups and that sort of thing. And I think that this tool is really making me better at that by looking at which pitchers are, you know, in more favorable matchups on the edges. You know, you're always going to start your races, et cetera, but trying to figure out sometimes surprisingly which pitchers are a better option is a... You know, it can can be a little bit tricky. I can give you one example. On my NFBC team, I've got both Kyle Hendricks and Jose Quintana from the Cubs. Neither one of them have been terrific this year. But as it turns out, you know, since one of them's a lefty and one of them's a righty, they, they seem to line up in the rotation, you know, one day after the other. So they, they pretty often face the same team in the same week. And since one's a lefty and one's a writing, the ratings in their matchup tool will often vary dramatically. And I've been leaning on those ratings to play those guys based on those ratings. And I think I'm getting better value from both of those guys than I would be if I was just leaving them in rotation all the time because I'm letting the tool dictate the matchups for that. So that's uh, that's another example of uh, a tool that I am uh, spending a lot of time with this year. You mentioned using those splits tools and those month-by-month tools. Over the last couple of weeks, Todd and I and some of my other guests have been talking about this whole idea of how big a sample is big enough, and how do you manage those kind of questions, both as a organizer, administrator of Baseball HQ tools, and as a user. You know, the how, how do you how do how to adjust to them or how to react to them is you know sort of I tend to take a very hands-off approach to that. Um, I sort of let our projections engine 
uh, figure that out for itself, and I will very rarely sort of put my thumb on the scale to change that. You know, even in the case like Max Muncy, I'm sort of letting the projection engine figure that out rather than, you know, exert some force of either positive or negative pressure on that. I, I almost feel like the, uh, you know, I want to let the algorithm sort of speak for itself. But, you know, as a decision maker, you know, a way, you know what I want the tools to do is to, you know, inform the decision making. So I want the projection to sort of provide the, you know, say what it's going to say and provide the, ba- the quote unquote objective baseline and then just allow the reader, the user, the customer to, to make decisions with that information because if they can see what the projection line says and in Muncie's case maybe it's pretty pedestrian because it's not going to the projections aren't designed to buy into 130 at bats of you know crazy performance no matter how good the 130 at bats have been but if you can go look at the splits of you know to switch to another player uh, say Jesse Winker, who you know did, and I think hit one home run in all of April and May, and looked like he was going to be nothing but an empty OBP guy, and then suddenly in June woke up and hit five home runs, boosted his fly ball rate, and now seems like he's starting to marry that plate patience to that power. You want to be able, you know, I'm looking at the split data to sort of make the decisions and you know sort of push me as a user to say. You know, there might be upside beyond the projection here. I know why the projection is saying what it's saying, but I'm willing to bet on the more recent performance or it looks like something's changed here, that sort of thing. So, you know, I try to wear two separate hats between managing the tools and then using the tools the way a one of our customers would. Um, and I and it's for that reason to try to, you know, I, I feel like people have an expectation of what the projection is telling them and they know that the projection is going to be you know, somewhat conservative, either reflecting a hot start cooling off or a cool start warming up. And that's sort of that regression to the mean is, you know, what we expect projections to do. And I let kind of let the projections do that. And then, you know, if there's a step, you know, of additional optimism or, or pessimism to be applied there, um, I, I that's where I go to the split data to see that kind of thing. I agree with that process as a user because that's that's how I do it. I, I get the available players list off the commissioner site that we use, and I put it into an Excel spreadsheet. And there's a first cut where you say, well, here's the 12 out of 14 available guys that I just know I don't want uh, for whatever reason. I know they're bad. I know they're historically bad. There's nothing in their line to recommend them. And then you take the handful that are left, and that's when you start digging in. And uh, to answer my own question from earlier, I think the sample size issue is – it's not moot, but it's pretty close because you have to grab onto something. And uh, if you're trying to choose between two or three available guys, they're all going to be small samples. So you might as well take the guy who has a small sample and doing well versus the guy who has a small sample and isn't. And uh, you go into that with your eyes open. You can't you can't go back in hindsight and say, well, I'm really disappointed in the tool or I'm really disappointed in my decision-making process because this guy didn't continue to hit, in Jesse Winker's case, didn't continue to keep his fly ball rate up, didn't continue to marry his plate patience with with loft and, and with uh, power but it was a decent enough bet that you have to make it and if it doesn't work out so be it that's that's how i look at it i think that's right and then to, you know there's another aspect to that too which is you you know when you're looking at you know, fridges like that or looking at guys to add to your roster, you know, the, the other aspect of it is trying to deli- trying to discern the playing time projection. And that's really hard too. you know, Ron Chandler talked in the baseball forecaster this year about, you know, eradicating the words, no path to playing time from our 
vocabulary. And in season, that still applies. You can go back to the case of Brandon Nimmo, where one of the things that was working against me picking him up in May was that it looked like his playing time window was a pretty narrow one. You know, Cespedes was out with what at the time looked like a pretty minor calf injury, and Conforto wasn't hitting, and Bruce wasn't hitting, and Lagares is out for the season. And, you know, Nimmo sort of stepped into that playing time breach, but the expectation was that, you know, Conforto would heat up and Cespedes would be back and Nimmo would be back on the bench. And you thought maybe you were grabbing a guy to play for you for three or four weeks and the playing time would dry up. But now here we are eight, ten weeks later, and not only is Nimmo still playing because Cespedes is out, but he's hit so well that, you know, he's cooled off a little bit recently, but there's probably no chance of him going back to the bench. He's installed in that lineup now, and, you know, Bruce will sit, or, you know, Bruce will move to first base, or they'll do any number of other things to keep Nimmo in the lineup, because even if he's not socking home runs and stealing bases, they need that, you know, one of his core skills is on base percentage, and they've put him in the leadoff spot, and they need to leave him there. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Ray Murphy, the co-general manager and a columnist at BaseballHQ.com. And Ray, I was reading a Jason Stark article at The Athletic the other day, and he pointed out that baseball has had more starts, more pitcher starts this year of five innings or more with no hits or one hit than happened all of last season. As well, batting averages against starters are down 13 points this season from last. Hits per game are at their lowest since 1972. Assuming the overall decline in base hits continues, what does it say about the response that fantasy owners need to start thinking about? You know, it's funny about the uh, the point about the no hitters because I, I had sort of a negative reaction to that. You know, Stark wrote about it. Uh, I don't have a negative reaction to his piece, but I was having a negative reaction to the no hitter. You know, the five inning no hitter trend because the. Uh, I don't know if you use the uh, MLB app, but they were they send out uh, if you have them turned on, they send out alerts on your phone every time a pitcher gets to five no hit innings and then updates them at six, seven, eight, and you know and so on. And the five inning no hitter alerts felt like for a while in like May and June they were coming like every like every night. It's like okay, this needs to stop. Can we wait until we get to six or better yet seven innings before you try to wake me up and tune into the game? You know, just knock it off. There's a there's a five inning no hitter every night, and I guess Stark Stark you know correctly hit on the same point. And you know what 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 it means from a fantasy perspective is you know is a tough nut to crack from a number of levels. Uh, it's something we need to put a lot of thought into over the course of the se- rest of the season. Uh, I've been having a conversation with Matt Cedarholm from HQ about what this means for the tiers in our Mayberry scores, uh, you know, even just from a uh, projection and, you know, um, point of view of how we evaluate these players. If, you know, all of the batting averages are, you know, not just going down, but sort of converting converging into a narrow range is you know the baseline for number of acceptable strikeouts and you know contact rate and those sort of things all you know all intertwine into this and it's uh it, it's a tough nut to crack and then you know I'm, I'm actually having pretty good luck in you know some of the leagues that i'm doing well in by you know i i'm not sure 100 what i did right but i'm i've got some pretty good batting averages going and i think Back in the spring, one of the things I was focused on in my draft was trying to prioritize building a batting average foundation because, you know, quote-unquote power is everywhere, but it's really tough to – you can find power in season if you need more of it, but rehabbing a batting average in season is really, really tough, and I think that approach – 
is one of the things that's leading me to good results this year. So again, I don't want to you know pass too many midseason judgments here, but that's one of the things I've got sort of tucked away for late season in the off season is to validate sort of the approach of almost a, a batting average first or batting average all the way throughout your draft and you know shy away from you know extreme batting average risks because in this day and age when there are so few hits you know fewer obviously fewer hits you know except for the extreme obp guys fewer hits means fewer chances on base means fewer chances to score runs and the, the you know there's too much of a cross category impact there that you have to pay attention to that at the same time, Ray, starting pitchers are clearly not going as deep into games. Uh, Jason Stark's article pointed out that the average innings per start is really plummeting. And I went and checked at BaseballReference.com, bat- the batters faced numbers. Uh, the number of starts that have gone 33-plus batters faced for pitchers this year is on pace to just be 11 starts for this whole season. That's half of last year, which was already low, and 50 starts fewer than in 2014. Pitchers, Starting pitchers are just not getting into games and we understand, I guess, that teams are optimizing their starting pitcher usage, they're employing deeper bullpens, they're trying to keep everybody healthy. So the same question, assuming more of the same in the future, how should fantasy owners respond to this seeming sea change in how starting pitchers are going fewer and fewer innings? You know, it's interesting. That's one of the things about the Tampa situation with the quote-unquote opener that they're using that has me really interested. It's, it's not something I've seen talked about a lot in the context of that but I think that approach if it expands to other teams or starts getting used more is actually potentially a boon for pitcher wins now not necessarily starting pitcher wins but because the starting pitchers are the you know Sergio Romo's or Ryan Stanek's who are going an inning or two and they're not obviously they're obviously not a candidate to get the win but for the next guy who comes in, the, the Ryan Yarborough in particular, who's a guy I've got on a few teams right now, you know, if he comes in in the second or third inning and goes four or five, or is, he's done a couple of cases this year, even longer than that, you know, that actually greatly maximizes his chances of getting a win in a game because he's not pitching the first. You know, if he's going five and two thirds innings, he's not leaving with two outs in the sixth. He might go five and two thirds innings and leave two out with two outs in the eighth and give the ball right to. A closer and you know that having coverage of the sixth, seventh, eighth inning as the starter there greatly increases your chances for a win. So, you know, particularly if a you know team with a, a better team than Tampa and a team with better starting pitchers starts doing that, you know, it might be that starting pitching values get incredibly skewed by what approach teams are using with that. Because if I've got a guy who's only going to go five innings, I want him pitching the third through the seventh for the shot at the win rather than the first through the fifth. And that's going to that's gonna directly impact values. I think that's an excellent analysis, Ray. And I, I wonder if the Tampa experiment proves successful. I'm sure a lot of other teams are going to start aping it. Uh, you remember a couple of years ago, Colorado tried a similar sort of thing with uh, – Two start start uh, two starter starts where they had two guys in tandem, knowing that each of them was going to go twice through the lineup, and then we'll figure it out from there. And it didn't work uh, mostly because they just didn't have good enough pitching. And uh, if this catches on, I mean, can you see a time down the road when the uh, general public just decides that wins is uh, no longer a useful category for fantasy? 
Well, we decided that a long time ago, right, Patrick? You and I. Yeah, that's what yeah, we did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, sure. I mean, because what we're doing is converging toward a model where they're all just pitchers, and you know, announcing your starting pitcher for the day might be irrelevant if he's only going to pitch one inning. And you know, I I think from a strategy point of view, it would be, it would be fascinating. We started to, you know, w- w- just scrape the surface of this, but we saw. Uh, I forget who it was. It might have been Anaheim who was playing Tampa and one of the nights when they started Sergio Romo, who has some you know big righty lefty splits, and they stacked the top of their lineup with all their lefties to get you know their lefties to get guaranteed swings at Romo. And you know how cool is that? You know, I yeah, sure it impacts the lineup construction for the rest of the game, but from a you know strategy chess match point of view, you know who doesn't want more of that kind of stuff? That I'm I'm all in favor of that. It also seems to open up some interesting strategy chess match type of things for fantasy players themselves in their drafting, in their weekly streaming. They've got a lot of decisions to make along these lines. And especially if you could learn to understand how the various teams are doing what they're doing so that you can start predicting and projecting who's going to be pitching when and for how long in the course of a week also has really important ramifications, I think, for daily. Can you imagine how difficult it would be to pick your pitcher in a, in a DFS game? If everybody or most teams were using this two-inning starter kind of thing, you'd have to pick out who might be the next guy. And because sometimes that's not always as clear as it might be, and a lot of it depends on matchups at the time they decide to pull that opener or what uh, uh, Jason Collette calls pre-lever. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, anything that involves... You know, in our, from our fantasy games involves more skill or more analysis or, you know, more opportunities for decisions to what the, you know, sort of cream rise to the crop. I'm in favor of it. I mean, sure, you get to the point where, you know, take um, Josh Hader in Milwaukee, you know, who's, you know, on any given night, if he's rested for a couple of nights, has the chance to come in and, you know, as we've seen him do this year, you know, come in and go two and two and a third innings and strike out six or seven guys, right? I mean, that's massively valuable. But if you have to choose to put him in the lineup, not knowing if that's going to be the night, you can look at it and say, you know, he's fresh. He might, you know, tonight might be the night they turn him loose for a while. But then, you know, Milwaukee might get down seven nothing in the third inning, and it's not the night they're going to burn Hater. So, you know, there's, um, you know, I'm in favor of more strategic considerations and more, um, more, more more opportunities like that to make decisions. Anything like that, um, yeah, I think makes just enriches our games. I was looking at the Baseball HQ year-to-date dollar values, Ray, for uh, five-by-five leagues, and we have three hitters tied for top spot at thirty-nine dollars. Two more at thirty-eight. Then the list falls off down to thirty-two and down from there. You're really connected to the HQ valuation system. Is the concentration of value at the top like this something new? And one way or the other, how should owners react to it? I don't think it's that new, you know, sort of, again, you know, I'll, I'll repeat the caveat that, uh, you know, some of those, you know, being at midseason, some of those guys who were up there may not be there at the end of the year. Obviously, that's, it's a pretty good list right now. Those are all guys who belong there, but, you know, the, the, the values will continue to move around. I, I think it's sort of a reflection of the, the changes in the game that we're talking about. You can't get much past the, say, $32 level without being a five-category contributor. You've got to have you know, a near 300 average and double-digit stolen bases. You can't, you know, even Giancarlo Stanton, you know, at, at some point you can't hit enough home runs with a 260 batting average to become a, you know, $40, $45 player, or at least you're going to have to hit 70. Um, 
but it's the broad-based skill sets that have more paths to get up to that, you know, 38, 39, $42 range. And I think that's what you're seeing there. You're seeing, you know, Mookie Betts up there. You're seeing, you know, Altuve being propped up by the massive batting average, which, you know, obviously is a skill he owns. So there's nothing necessarily an outlier about that. But I, th- I think it goes to show you how, you know, from a team building perspective, the advantage of having those five category contributors who are giving you foundation across everything and leaving you in a situation where you don't necessarily have to go chasing specialists later on. You're building the foundation, you know, concurrently across all five categories. Well, Ray, when I first glanced at the hitter list, I thought I might accidentally have clicked on the AL only link. All five of those top guys, Betts, Trout, Lindor, Jose Ramirez, five category guys, plus JD Martinez, they're all American leaguers. Uh, are National League only lo- owners going to need a different approach to hitters than American League on- only leagues? Yeah, we might be getting to that point, and you know, it, it's. Uh, I think it ties back to the uh, to, to my earlier statement about you know the broad based skill sets, and in particular, um, you know, the speed guys in the National League are such a wasteland. With uh, you know, Trey Turner's been okay, but he's not up at that level, and you know, Billy Hamilton uh, obviously is. You know, his maybe uh, spitting down the drain a little bit, and D. Gordon switched leagues. So there, there's, you know, other than Turner, there's not really a foundational guy in the National League who really hits all five categories. You know, Charlie Blackman's getting a little long on the tooth, and his running game seems to be drying up a little bit. You know, Nolan Arenado is sort of a perfect example of the principle I was talking about a second ago, where you can sort of only go so far as a four-category guy in the values. You know, you can be you know, an elite contributor in four categories, but unless you have the fifth, you're not like, you, you can't get up to that $40 level without doing something just completely bonkers in the other four categories. Um, and Aaron Otto was, you know, illustrates that as much as anybody. So, yeah, the uh, the NL, you know, obviously we're up for another offseason of the player movement, and we'll see what happens, but the uh, the the player pool in the NL seems like it's uh, a little bit uh, in disarray. Same sort of thing on the pitching side, except the elite tier is even higher in value, well into the $40. And then there's the big falloff and a preponderance of ALers at the top again. How do owners deal with pitching values if this stratification continues? You know, it's hard for the, uh, you know, there's so much going on there. You talk about being in disarray, you know, as we move from, you know, how much of a move are we going to see from these specialized roles to everyone just being pitchers, like we were talking about earlier? You can, on the one hand, you get the pre-relievers or the closers or the openers or whatever you want to call them in the front of the game. And then, you know, you, you talk about this being a copycat league and, you know, experiments like Tampa's going on, but then you've got experiments like what the Astros are doing in their bullpen and are, you know, as people, you know, it's a copycat league, and when acknowledged smart teams like the Astros are, you know, all but not going with a closer, um, you know, what do you, you know, Ken Giles gets sort of the easy saves, and then when they get, you know, the quote-unquote hard saves where it's, you know, they're as likely to go to multiple innings of Davinsky or Peacock or, you know, mix and match or go with whoever's freshest on a given night. And, you know, when teams that are having success are doing that, then, you know, I, I you we're running the risk of being in a case where, you know, this year one or two teams are doing that and then one or two becomes five and then five becomes 15 before you know it. And now suddenly the way we play our game sort of needs to get totally reinvented. So I think we've all got to sort of, you know, there's, there's a lot of, there's more experimentation going on in the game than I can remember. And we all sort of need to stay on our toes um, as fantasy players to react to what experiments, you know, take root and sort of 
catch on like wildfire because sort of the nature of it is, you know, some of these things are going to, not all of them, might be wrong place, wrong time, not ready yet for some of them. But, you know, whatever does catch on, we need to be ready to react to. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Ray Murphy, co-general manager at BaseballHQ.com, a columnist at the site as well. And Ray, during the season, I like to ask our expert guests to talk about players they think will be boons and banes for the rest of the fantasy season. Uh, Maybe we'll start with your boons. These are guys you think should interest our listeners for the balance of the year. Starting in the American League, who's a boon hitter for you? Um, maybe I'm the last fan here, but I'm going to go with Byron Buxton. I think he's going to be back soon. I think he just needs a little bit of health and, you know, a couple of bleeders to drop in or beat out a couple of infield hits or something to get some confidence going. Uh, it's two years running now that he's had either big Septembers or big second halves to get us excited about him and in my case, overdraft him in the next year. Uh, but I wouldn't be surprised to see that again. He's somebody who's probably been dropped in a lot of leagues or has near zero value now, but I think uh, I'm holding out hope for a uh, significant second half contribution there. And you have Buxton on a lot of your team, so it would be helpful to you uh, as well. It definitely would be. In the National League, who's a hitter you think is going to be a boon? You know, just this week, it seems like the Cubs offense is woken up, and the uh, Anthony Rizzo hasn't quite gotten the memo yet, but I'm I'm expecting a uh, first-round caliber balance of the season from him as the Cubs overall take off and he uh, is a linchpin in the middle of that. He's only hitting like 240 or something like that now and the power is sort of there but I'm uh, I'm expecting a much more representative second half from him. The other day on Twitter somebody asked me uh, would you rather have Paul Goldschmidt or Anthony Rizzo in a uh, dynasty or keeper format? I said Goldschmidt, uh, what do you say? You know, I think I got that question too and I, I didn't answer it because I wasn't sure how. I think I got asked Goldschmidt, Rizzo or Bryant and I think I'd probably pick Bryant. But uh, that's uh, that's a tough call. Over to the mound, uh, who's a pitcher in the American League who could be a boon for his owners? You know, we were talking about Tampa pitchers earlier, and another one I like quite a bit of what I've seen so far off the DL is uh, Nietzsche Ivaldi. I I don't know how he'll hold up and whether he'll be healthy for the whole second half, but the stuff is there. It seems like you know he's always been a guy who throws a million miles an hour without necessarily much idea of where it's going or what's going on with it. But uh, he might be turning into a little bit more of a pitcher. I think Tampa's a good place to develop him. And, you know, he's another guy who benefits from that uh, in terms of wins from that pre-reliever model. And finally, how about a National League pitcher who could be a boon? You know, sticking with the Buxton model, I'm going to cast a vote for Jonathan Gray here. I don't I don't understand why he's in the minors. I assume he'll be back right after the break. Uh, it kind of reminds me a couple of years, several years ago now when Max Scherzer was in Detroit. He got sent to the minors for like a week and a half. Um, and, you know, I don't know what happened in that week and a half, but he came back and... I think he struck out 15 the day he got called up, and pretty much after 10 days in the minors, he's been the Max Scherzer that we now know almost ever since then. It was a, you know, his career basically turned on a dime. I'm not saying the same thing's going to happen for Jonathan Gray, but I've always liked Jonathan Gray a ton, and, you know, if a uh, quick vacation to Colorado Springs figures something out or lets him, you know, change a release point or a grip or something like that to uh, polish up what we all know is a really good skill set, I Hold that hope for big things there. You know, the thing about Jonathan Gray is I don't think he has to change anything. He was pitching really well. He was just unlucky. You know, he had the yeah. fairly low uh, strand rate or fairly high hit rate. If you normalize all that stuff, I think his expected ERA is around three at BaseballHQ.com's uh, using that tool. I really was mystified by this. If it wasn't for Jacob DeGrom, Jonathan Gray might be the least lucky pitcher in the league. 
Yeah, and it's one of those things where I, w- I almost wonder if the Rockies don't know what. They- I mean, they're a smart organization; they must know what they have there. But like, if they sent it- when when they sent him to the minors like that, I would assume roughly twenty seven other general managers called and said, "Hey, you know, if you want to give up on that guy, we'll take him." So may- maybe they noticed when they got twenty seven phone calls that uh, you know the rest of the league thinks highly of Jonathan Gray, and maybe they shouldn't yank him, yank him around so much. I know certainly if it happened in my fantasy league that uh, somebody put Jonathan Gray on his reserve, um, it'd be my first email, that's for sure. Uh, Let's move over to the Baines. Ray, uh, these are guys about whom you think listeners should be cautious for the balance of the year. Uh, Again, we'll start in the American League. Who's a Bane hitter? Uh, You know, I'm going to play a little bit of the sell-high game here. Some guys who have been really good that I, you know, I'm skeptical of their ability to continue it. It doesn't mean they're not good players. But uh, in the AL, I'll say Michael Brantley, uh, mostly because I'm concerned about his ability to hold up for the rest of the season. Uh, you know, he's been quite good, put back into the middle of that Cleveland lineup, and is you know pretty much looks like the Michael Brantley of old. But I, you know, I, I question whether uh, that can hold up for another three months. In the National League, who's a being hitter for you? Uh, Brandon Crawford. I, you know, he's been awesome. I, you know, I've got him on a team or on a team or two, and he's been fantastic. But I, I he just can't be this good, right? I don't know. Uh, Bane pitcher in the American League. Uh, Ronaldo Lopez has been remarkably passable on a terrible White Sox team. And I, I like Lopez well enough. I like his stuff. I think long-term he might be a pretty decent pitcher, but it just seems like, you know, as he carries a workload into the heat for the you know first time in a few years for him on a bad team with a bad bullpen behind him that, you know, that just has the potential to go awfully sideways. And finally, a National League pitcher who could be a bane. You know, I was surprised looking around at some National League pitchers that Chase Anderson's ERA is ho- hovering right below four. And on a good Milwaukee team, you might be like, oh, you know, he's a serviceable guy and a good team, could get some good wins there. Um, you know, he's a guy who wouldn't hurt you. I, I think he does have potential to hurt in the rest of the second half, and uh, he's someone I would uh, resist the temptation to pick up on the cheap. Ray Murphy's Boons, Byron Buxton of the Twins, Anthony Rizzo of the Cubs, Nady Ivaldi of Tampa, and Jonathan Gray of Colorado, his Baines. A sell high on Michael Brantley of Cleveland for injury risk, uh, Brandon Crawford of the Giants, Ronaldo Lopez of the White Sox, and Chase Anderson of Milwaukee. Uh, Ray, uh, can't let you go without asking about first pitch Arizona, the second most fun day after draft as far as I'm concerned. I saw the logos up on the site. There's a notice that early bird registration is underway. What's the scoop on this year's dates? Uh, Maybe locations. Uh, what's this early registration all about? Yes, uh, we should talk about Arizona, as you say. Uh, you know, if draft day is the best year. We the best day of the year. Then first pitch Arizona is the best weekend of the year. We don't have to choose favorites. We can just put them in different categories. But it's an awesome time, like you said. Pre registration is open now. Uh, the dates are November first through fourth. We are at the Courtyard Salt River in Scottsdale, which is sort of one of our two usual base hotels there. It's a mile or two from Salt River Field, where we end up spending a lot of the weekend watching ball games. Uh, we'll be running drafts. We've got a fantastic uh, cross-section of industry experts, commentators, roughly all the people who have appeared on Baseball Radio, Baseball HQ Radio this year, Patrick, I think will be out there with us. Uh, it's a who's who of industry luminaries, and the best thing that 
uh, people who come out say about it is it's not just who's there, but it's how approachable everybody is and the community spirit and how you can corner any of your favorite industry people over lunch or at a ballpark and talk about your team or your league or the game or whatever you want. And uh, it's really just an incredible uh, weekend of camaraderie, camaraderie, community feel, and of course, baseball. So uh, uh, pre-registration, the current uh, first deadline comes up uh, on July 16th. That's a week from Monday. Uh, Like you said, the logo is right there. uh, Big Orange logo on the Baseball HQ homepage. You can go click on that and get all the details about the hotel and the program will get filled in over the course of the summer. Last year's program is up there if you want to get an idea of what you missed in terms of speakers and sessions. And uh, we saw Ronald Acuna last year and I'm sure we're going to see some uh, big prospects this year as we always do so it's uh it is three of the most fun days that you can have in if you're if you're a fan of this game or just like baseball kind of like three and a half for a lot of people because uh, i know it starts officially on friday but a lot of people start pulling in uh, on thursday afternoon taking a game and then there's a game in the evening where the the welcoming event is so if you if you can manage it you can get out there on thursday you can stretch it out to four days of baseball and fun in the sun uh, the hotel is the one with the fire pit right yes it is the other time that i i was at that hotel the fire pit turned into this all-night gathering spot for everybody, fans and uh, subscribers and and experts to come and just shoot the rag about uh, about baseball. It was one of the most fun nights night situations I've had uh, in a long, long time. It's cold in the desert in the wintertime, but uh, if you're at night, but if you're sitting there with your back to that nice fire in the fire pit and sit around, maybe uh, have a few beverages and talk about baseball, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, it was practically a regional microbrewery exchange going on at that fire pit too yeah that's right what's new at this year's event uh yeah so the program's just uh, shaping up now we're in the process of uh you know one of the things we always do at this time of year is go through the extensive uh attendee survey we distributed at the end of last year's and find out what people like and don't like and uh we're we've got our invites out to our industry contacts to uh, find out who's coming and what they want to present and we've got some ideas from those surveys of what people want to hear so what we end up doing for the next uh, month or so is kind of marrying the left hand with the right hand there and taking what speakers what speakers telling us what good work they've done and what topics they want to explore with what last year's attendees said they want to hear more and less of and you know shaping the program to go along with that there'll certainly be a lot of uh, the usual favorites, we'll be doing our Fact and Fluke panels, which are always a big hit. We'll do the Arizona Fall League scouting report, complete with uh, video analysis and uh, eyes on the ground, uh, eyes on the field from scouts who have been out there already watching those players. So, uh, you know, some of those things are tried and true and evergreen, and then I'm sure we'll have some uh, some new surprises. We have live drafts. We have we have auctions. Uh, the the experts fantasy league the XFL holds their draft out there every year so uh, yeah we'll be, we'll play back all the hits and we'll uh, introduce some new stuff too. Have you given any thought to my uh, tribute to Boy George? <laughs> well, you know, last year's big hit was the uh, in all seriousness was the podcast room, Patrick. So we'll certainly play that back again. That was a uh, lot of fun to get you guys and uh, Sleeper in the Bust and uh, you know a couple other shows uh, taping out there and doing. Uh, doing live events you know live podcasts are all the rage these days so yeah we were in on the ground oh, floor yeah. of that well i'll try to figure out a way to work in uh, karma chameleon one way or the other uh, ray <laughs> tell us where listeners can read more from uh, ray murphy 
You can find me on Twitter at RayHQ. Uh, and you can find me in the GM's office section on uh, Baseball HQ. Like I said earlier, I'll be dropping an article there uh, probably sometime this weekend with some more feedback on our new starting pitching rating tool. And you're a very active contributor on the HQ forums, which we never talk about enough. Oh, yeah. Let's not forget that. Let's not forget that. My uh, 25,000 posts or whatever it is, uh, you know, we're uh, hanging out with the subscribers and uh, chiming in on uh, trade proposals or how do I win this league or what do I do about this struggling guy or wow, Luis Castillo is really annoying me. We had, we had a great discussion this week about Luke Weaver and uh, what, 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 it, what, what, in, what is ailing him. Uh, Jason Collette and I were batting back and forth some theories about that. So it's, uh, I, I learn more in those forums than I do just about anywhere else on the uh, baseball internet. All right, Ray, thanks very much for appearing on Baseball HQ Radio. I'll try to get you back for the All-Star Break uh, HQ Radio Roundtable. Ah, yes, that's coming up too. That sounds good. I look forward to talking to you then. Ray Murphy is co-general manager and columnist at BaseballHQ.com. When we come back, our weekly talk with Todd. It's Todd Zola coming up and Master Notes next on Baseball HQ Radio. Smith, Corks one into right down the line. It may go. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our weekly talk with Todd, and I'm happy to once again say to Todd Zola, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Nice to be back with you, Patrick. Last week we talked about the uh, tout table, the round table, that question that you ask every week of the Tout Wars experts, some 85 strong now, and uh, many of them uh, put up an answer on a spreadsheet that's uh, available uh, to us, and then you take those and uh, scrape them out and put them into a story on uh, the Tout Wars website, toutwars.com. And I thought uh, this week's question was particularly interesting because it's kind of the holy grail of what a lot of us try to accomplish in the writing and forecasting business. And the question was... uh, Given that stats be used in context with one another, do you have a go-to metric to evaluate hitters, and what about pitchers? And then you had a follow-up question, is there a stat you see misused? Uh, Before we start with what some of the touts came up with for their answers, we should uh, uh, start by saying, what made you think of this? I I just think it's mainly, uh, I just think it's we've got such a, a wide array of touts that that have a, a, a bunch of different focuses from minor leagues to injuries to number scouting to real scouting, I, real scouting, you know, that, that go out and, and, and see players. And I, I think it's just interesting. And I'll read the Twitter feeds of all the touts. I'm sure you do too. And they'll, they'll all have their own angles of, of analysis. So I, I thought it'd be interesting to get it out there. Cause I don't, th- I mean, I don't think there, I don't think there is a right answer. You know, I, I I I hope you agree with that. If there was, we would know what it is, and we'd all be doing it, and half of us would be out of a job. <laughs> so I think it's interesting that uh, now can there be a wrong answer? You know what? Maybe there are wrong answers, but I don't think there's a right answer, which is uh, which is kind of the purpose to see what 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 everybody uses and how they approach managing their teams. 
And to be fair, the question is based on the premise that stats should be used in context with one another. So the, the yeah. question kind of acknowledges that there really isn't a one go-to stat and that we have to look at things in combination with other things, and that just makes sense. But having said that, I, I thought it was an interesting thought exercise anyways, and uh, the first thing I noticed when I read through the very many uh, responses, this was a big response from the touts, uh, there was quite a few uh, people who had variations of weighted on-base average WOBA, uh, some for hitters only, some for hitters and pitchers. So what's your opinion of WOBA as a go-to stat? Yeah, well, this is one of the reasons I, I write the questions. So I, <laughs> you guys out there, you want to you wanna ask a loaded question or whatever, get your own column and, and do it. One, that's kind of why I put is a stat you see misused. Because I, I anticipated some people talking about WOBA, and I don't want to say that they're wrong, uh, but there are some big issues with WOBA, weighted on-base average. For those that are a little unfamiliar, basically the, the components of on-base average, what they do is you take, uh, it's, it becomes a, you have uh, factors for each of the components, and it kind of relates to the run scoring index, and WOBA is kind of like a meat grinder catch-all number to uh, represent a player's potential overall production. It, it captures all the elements of, of you know being able to score runs and able to drive in runs. And uh, it, it's become a favorite of the DFS community because it's just like a one-size-fits-all stat. And DFS scoring, that's what that's what's usually involved. So it's, uh, it's become kind of a favorite of that community for both pitchers and hitters. But there are several issues with it. Um, and like all stats, I mean, because there is an issue doesn't mean it's a bad stat. It just means you need to know it. So when you apply it, you, you, you do it correctly and in context. One of the issues with WOBA is for fantasy analysis. And Mike Gianella, our friend from Baseball Prospectus, who you've had on the show, very smart uh, gentleman, pointed out that it doesn't incorporate stolen bases, which, you know, for people that invented WOBA, they don't care because that's not what they're looking at. But for fantasy purposes and even DFS, steals are important. They're 20% of the hitting, 10% overall in a 5x5 five five league, and they count in point scoring f format, so it does not encompass steals. So you just have to keep that in mind. Uh, another thing you need to keep in mind is it's not, it's not park adjusted, which unto itself, again, isn't really an issue you just, if you just know it isn't. Uh, if you want a, a metric that is park adjusted that does the same thing, uh, Fangraphs has WRC+, plus, Run Created+, plus. that's an index, where zero, uh, sorry, 100 is uh, neutral and anything above 100 is a positive performance by the player and under 100 is is negative uh, whereas WOBA is a weight stat but WRC plus is park adjusted and the other thing and this is more for fantasy and I, I think this is big for DFS too WOBA is a rate stat it does not incorporate uh, team contacts which is batting order and just run scoring the environment of a team you know a, a, a I don't know a the leadoff, the, uh, Woba, the same Woba leading off for the Giants may not produce, you know, may produce fewer runs than the same Woba hitting seventh for the Yankees. You know, the Woba, you know, is the Woba is the same, but the 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 potential to score runs and knock in runs, even though you're lower in the batting order in the Yankees, may be greater because of the the, the team context. So all the, it, again, it doesn't make Woba bad. It just ha you have to understand all of this if you want to apply it. Now, if you're applying it in formulas and algorithms, etc., you know that's a different story too. But it's just something to keep in mind. You know, a lot of times we hear we hear it mentioned so much. If everybody's talking about it, it has to be good. Well, maybe not.
the thing that strikes me about WOBA as a as a go to stat is that I, I think it's really useful for daily fantasy because all of the components of it are things that are scored in daily fantasy. They they weight walks, singles, doubles, triples, and home runs. And I mean doubles and triples uh, count extra in in most scoring systems in in daily, and of course home runs count a lot. And they're all weighted accordingly. I mean a, a home run is worth uh, two point one what a single's worth, and to me, that that's a pretty good way of assessing a, a, a guy as far as his daily fantasy value. For the longer forms of fantasy baseball, however, I'm a little less confident in the stat because it depends so much on outcomes. I mean, if you're giving a double weight to home runs, for instance— they, the problem with that is it, it, it rates all home runs equally, even those that are curled around a pesky pole versus those that are smashed, you know, 500 feet into the third deck. And f- from that point of view and for all of those other things that contribute in a luck way to home runs f- for a longer term view, uh, that makes Woba a little suspect to me. A little bit, but as, as there is with all numbers nowadays, there are people that are coming out with an expected Woba. So one of the analysis, and I was uh, going through the numbers, I think this may have been uh, Jason Collette, another frequent visitor, uh, first pitch uh, speaker and and guest on your show, uh, likes to use WOBA minus expected WOBA as a means of of looking, you know, we look at, you know, a luck versus skill sort of idea. And uh, so that's, there are some smart people out there that have come up with an expected WOBA. Uh, much the way you come up with an expected BABIP, expected ERA, that sort of thing. So that you know that kind of speaks a little. You know, you're not the only one that feels that way, or else they wouldn't have invented an expected woba. So it's kind of that's a, that's a strong that's a, it's a strong opinion. I think is very valid. Um, the only thing I would mention as far as DFS goes, it does bring up the lineup context in that it, it produce you don't just looking at a woba, you're not exactly sure how many runs in RBIs. A particular player could get so that's just you know that's why you use it in context with looking up the batting order and just knowing the team context so it's a it's a tool it's 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 it, like I said, it's in con- every almost every number we come up with we're going to want to we're going to want to use in concert with something else Doug Dennis of Baseball HQ, also a fan of uh, weighted on base average WOBA minus expected weighted uh, on base average, yep. and, and he basically said, and Jason said the same thing. It's a way to try to identify guys who are over underperforming, which could be a luck kind of thing, and you're trying to track down guys for for whom uh, their performance may have a luck element that could be due for some form of regression forwards or backwards and that yep. can help you make um waiver claim decisions fab decisions dad drop decisions all these kind of things i think they're those are all uh, pretty interesting uh, a couple of guys in the uh, tout table talked about babip and uh at least one of them, as I recall, said, you got to be careful with Babbitt because too many people, and this comes under the heading of what mistakes do people make, too many people look at a, at a high Babbitt and say, this is going to collapse any minute and make decisions based on that. And that's not how it works either. Yeah, Babbitt, there's another issue with Babbitt I'll get to as well. Yeah, now, I, I, the, the general rule of thumb, not so much rule of thumb, I mean, the general fact is, Pitchers will cluster around the same BABIP, and we've learned over the years that ground balls and fly balls matter, hard hit, soft hit, medium hit matter, but they still they cluster closer to the league mean than hitters do. Hitters can generate their own baseline, um, and based upon their hitting profile, again, line drives, fly balls, ground balls, how hard they hit the ball, etc., uh, etc. Et so whereas it's 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 more it's 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 more correct to 
say a pitcher's high high BABIP will regress towards league mean, or low BABIP will regress, you know, the other way towards league mean. A batter a batters won't necessarily do that. Uh, at least, well, it regresses to their right. own mean. They they establish their own baseline. Again, I mean, a ground ball pitcher has a different baseline than a fly ball pitcher, but it's it's a lot closer than the baselines of hitters. So, and I've seen this too. And, and I, you know, I am I was kind of I guess I'll use the word disappointed because I, this is kind of this isn't a this isn't a secret. I mean, th- this has been known for for a long time, and I like to think that those in the industry are aware of this. But I agree, and it's not just the touts. I'm seeing it in a few different places. I'll read some pieces on the web where there's some analysis that suggests this BABIP is going to regress because it's, you know, it, it, it's, what they, the way they word it, you can tell that they don't understand that it's going to be high anyway. They, they make it feel like it's going to regress to league mean as opposed to, you know, there are players that can carry a 360 BABIP. Maybe they're at 380 now. Sure, it's going to regress to 360, but it shouldn't be thought to regress all the way down to 300. Mike Podhorzer, uh, also been on the show, he's from Fangraphs, says he didn't have a go-to metric for hitters, but if he had to, he would choose the uh, StatCast fly ball and line drive exit velocities, and he says you can't fake hitting the ball hard. That's a pretty good argument. Nope, yeah, one of my favorite lines that I'll use occasionally is you can't fake strikeouts. Now, uh, although I'm watching some umpires, you may not be able to fake them, but you can certainly get some help. But no, I agree. That I mean, you try to distill it down to the absolute, you know, baseline, and it's how hard you hit the ball. Now, and you know, fly ball and line drive, it's uh, it, it matters more because it's you know, ground ball you can defense a, a hard hit ground ball a little bit better, but a uh, fly ball and line drive, uh, it's it's important. So it's one of the newer numbers. The problem with it though, and we're really really good at looking at this data and and. and in disc- you know, backward engineering, reverse engineering, what happened? We're still not at the point yet where we can say so and so's uh, has a such and such line drive velocity, exit velocity. Therefore, we can expect this over the second half or even this next season. We just don't know yet uh, how predictable they're. They're descriptive. They're not yet predictive. We don't know the sample necessary and the variant. You know, the range around the error bars around that sample to be able to use a lot of these things in a predictive manner, which folds into the whole misuses of it is a lot of people are, you know, okay, this guy's line drive rate is what it is, or hard hit rate is what it is. He's going to have a great second half. We just don't know. The whole elevated swing, we've mentioned these names a few times already this year with Logan Morrison and Justin Smoke. They, they did it last year. They're not having quite the success that they are this year with the new elevated swing, so we don't know how sustainable that is for some uh, for some hitters. Scott Swainey, uh, who's a really smart guy, Fantasy Baseball Sherpa is his website, uh, and he's a he's a really smart guy about stats. And he says he likes the Statcast data as well. But when you talk about exit velocities, and launch angles, you might be missing the fact that the stat that generally separates the best hitters from the worst is walk rate. Now, there are exceptions he, he grants, but he says collectively the top hitters have a walk rate around 12% that's roughly twice as high as the bottom hitters. And he, to him, it makes a lot of sense. And I have to say, to me, it makes a lot of sense as well. Yeah. Now, yeah, the key, though, is anytime you say, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but Jose Altuve, yeah, but, right. you know, it's, you know, you, you, you look at the, the greater good. And I also want, you know, is there a cause and effect? Are they 
are they good because they walk, or you know, or, or is walking just part of, uh, you know, pitchers pitching around them? Now the difference is such that I think having a discerning eye obviously helps. Um, now, but to me, the, the as far as the bottom hitters that don't walk, guys like Altuve, one of the reasons they don't walk is because they they have such excellent plate coverage. That they're 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 putting they're putting not just balls into play they're putting strikes into play that other hitters don't so they're not lasting long enough in the count to walk so again so I I use looking at the walk rate I'll use that in context with their contact because uh, I, I excuse a player like Jose Altuve to a certain extent Xander Bogarts is kind of a lesser example in that in that idea where they they have such great plate coverage. And this also hurts their exit velocity because they're, they're, the, the, the outside pitches are just dinking in a right field. hurts their exit velocity. And we've talked about that before, about the average exit sure. velocity. So I agree with Scott, but again, it's one of those, and I think he'll do the same thing. He doesn't look at just walk rate. He'll look at that in context with some of these other numbers. And he, even talk, he talked about that too. Yes, he did. Uh, moving over to the pitcher side, I thought there was a, quite a bit more unanimity uh, in regards to the, the go-to stat. And for a lot of the touts, it was some variation of strikeouts minus walks, strikeouts divided by walks, but it was a, a some kind of comparison of how many strikeouts is this guy getting versus how many guys is he walking. Yeah, and that, you know, talking about distilling down to the to the root, you know, to the root factor, uh, that's that's what it is. If you do not, if you strike out a batter. The there's you know <laughs> you know silly silly observation of you know third strike getting past the uh, getting past the catcher it's hard to score runs if you're striking out hitters so I think in and yes it's possible to be successful Mark Burley and Tanner Roark uh, you know have some sustained success you know as they say pitch to con I always get a kick out of pitch to contact I don't think anything other than a knuckleballer actually as the ball he's here here hit this. I think they all want the guy to swing and miss. It's just some are better at it than others. But uh, anyway, um, yeah, so I, I agree. It, it, strikeouts, to, it, to me, is, is the best outcome. And batters, uh, pitchers that can induce more strikeouts just have a better chance of success. Again, though, it has to be in context. Because if you look at a guy with a low strikeout rate, and he doesn't walk people, and he has the, the skill of inducing weak contact, and he's got a good defense, he can be successful. Now, that's a lot of ifs, and the more ifs you introduce, the more variance and the more chances of something to go wrong, therefore, they're more of a risk. But, you know, I think that you're, you're a little myopic if all you do is you look at strikeouts. I start with strikeouts and then kind of, you know, go from there. What about for pitchers, things like expected ERA or XFIP or FIP or Sierra or all of these kind of uh, synthetic uh, what what ERAs should be rather than what ERAs are? There was a few few touts on this topic, and some of them like uh, these uh, expected um, stats and and manufactured stats about what ought to be, and some who are a little less uh, sure that they're that useful. Yeah. Now the problem, you know, Baseball HQ has an expected ERA, has a has an algorithm that's been developed, and it's been uh, you know altered a lot over the years. Uh, you know, FIP and XFIP are probably the two most uh, known as far as you know easily available, easily attainable numbers, but they're not 
they're not perfect. So people have like you mentioned Sierra. They used to be TRA. There 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 are other there are other uh, uh, you know uh, entities of an expected ERA all claiming to be best. Uh, none of them. I mean, they're they're expected. You know, their their algorithms, their re, their regressions, their their modeling. So I don't get hung up on what I think is the best. I just if there's a discrepancy between their ERA and whatever expected ERA that I'm using, usually I'll look at a several of them, and I don't I don't care the exact number, but so long as you know they're all higher or all lower than the actual ERA, I figure that there's some re, there's a correction coming. What that correction is, who knows? Because you know regression doesn't have a calendar and it doesn't you know doesn't check in exact exactly to the mean all the time. So I don't get hung up on the you know the FIP is is a little higher than the XFIP or whatever. I don't get hung up on that. Although with FIP and XFIP, if you do realize that XFIP uh, normalizes homers and FIP doesn't, it kind of helps uh, at least on that level understand why one may be different than the other. So I agree with the with the norm. Not the norm, but the people that say they're not perfect. But I don't, I don't care. I don't, I don't need to get that granular. I just, all right. So, th- so this pitcher's been lucky or unlucky. I'm going to expect uh, a reversal or some positive movement for that pitcher. No, no, how much? And I don't think you can calculate how much by the expected ERAs because there's so much else that goes on. But uh, they're useful. But I don't think they're, they're. You, you can't get, you know, you can't get down to the second decimal point. And finally, Todd, uh, there were some some comments from the touts about the utility of uh, of the swing and miss type stats. Uh, what what are the swing and miss percentages? What are the um, for hitters and for pitchers? What are the uh, first pitch strike percentages for pitchers? Uh, these kind of uh, plate discipline stats and uh, and as far as pitchers go, uh, discipline stats like uh, in zone swings, out zone swings. I guess for hitters too, and these kind of second order stats that are now become becoming increasingly common and easily accessed by not only analysts, but by people sitting at home listening to this podcast. You can go to Fangraphs and get a real good eyeful of all these kind of stats. Is a guy swinging mostly at strikes, or is he swinging a lot at balls that are out of the zone? Is he missing them? Is he hitting them? All of these kind of things seem to me to be really useful, but again, they're not the be-all and end-all, and I don't know that they're a, a, a one-size-fits-all type of stat. Yeah, well, talking about hitters for a second, I um I don't want to say I made the mistake of I just I was on Jonathan Scope, one of the reasons being his success last year, and then you could see it in these you know O O percent and Z percent you know outside the zone inside the zone, he he reduced the amount of time he chased he did not swing as many balls last season, and I thought that was you know it was a tan something it was tangible something I could point at something I could say Jonathan Scope is a new hitter. He's not chasing much anymore. Therefore, uh, maybe I'm going to not use my standard uh, weighted average, and, and I'm going to count 2017 a little bit more in my 2018 expectation than I would in, in, in a different situation. And he's starting to chase again this year, whether it's because it was a slow start and he's pressing or he's just unable to sustain. I mean, you know, they're off for six months. You don't necessarily, you know, some, you know as, a, as a fan, I'm off, you know, it kind of, it's kind of, you know, if it's cool, it just intrigues me or just kind of baffles me how after being off for six months, these players can come back at that exact same performance level, you know, the, the mechanics, the swings. That's all, you know, it's a long time being off and I know they're working out, but it just, it's kind of amazed me. That's why they're, that's why they're doing what they do and why I'm sitting here talking to you on the phone and, and you know, whatever. 
It's a really interesting question, and I think it, it really helps uh, people who are reading these answers to understand because there's such a wide range of things that the touts like. Uh, some of them were down as simple as I like on-base percentage or I like OPS, and other ones were in these like third-order third order metrics that are being manufactured by real smart people with uh, you know math degrees and stuff like that, and there's this huge range of possibilities that you can use, and I think the, uh, the success of the question is that it makes clear to the reader that there really is no one thing to go to and that you have to, uh, you really do have to take them in context and in combination. Yeah, and, you know, some in my youth, I'm, you know, the, the, the younger version of me, had I known all these expected stats, you know, may have, uh, may have said, you know, all you, if all you care about is OPS or OBP, you're not doing it right. Well, I'm not that way anymore. I mean, it, 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 it's, it's all, everybody's different. Everybody's mind's different, and everybody sees things differently. And if, if all you want to do is, is look at OBP, who am I to say that you're wrong by not looking at swing and strike or not looking at, at some of these more granular metrics? It's working for you. Nothing wrong with OBP. So I don't think it's, uh, you know, and there are, I've actually I got some comments that, you know, I, can you believe that so-and-so, you know, only looks at this yeah i can and i'm not i don't blame them for it it's 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 a different approach and my approach might be a little bit deeper but you know i don't win every league i, I can't i can't put i can't point scoreboard and say it's right i think that's the point yeah there's uh, a lot of people who do real well with their one stat just because they work a little harder at yeah. understanding how the stat works who it applies to, how it applies, and they just do their homework a little more aggressively than somebody who says, I'm going to use weighted on-base average or expected weighted on-base average or one minus the other. I'll sort them all in Excel, and that'll be my go-to thing. Man, no matter what stat you're using, there's more to it than that. Absolutely. That's why we do what we do. Todd Zola, thanks very much for helping us out again. We'll talk to you again in a week. Absolutely. Todd Zola writes for Masters Ball, ESPN, and Rotowire, and appears here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for Master Notes, my weekly discussion about baseball and fantasy baseball. And this week, let's have the June quiz. At the end of May, I debuted a little fantasy baseball quiz about the month that had just passed. I got a lot of friendly comments about it from listeners and readers, so in the time-honored principle of beating any new idea halfway to death, I'm doing a quiz again for June. As before, the rules are simple. Do your best to answer the questions, don't use the internet, and keep your results to yourself. Also, as before, we'll have ten questions about hitters, seven about starting pitchers, and three about relievers. Each answer comes five seconds after the question is asked. If you need more time, just hit the pause button on your audio player. Ready? Let us begin. The batters. Question 1. June saw 15 hitters with 100-plus plate appearances have OPS marks over 1,000, including offensive superstars like Paul Goldschmidt, Mike Trout, and J.D. Martinez, the unlikely Max Muncy, and rising stars like Juan Soto, Alex Bregman, Jesus Aguilar, and Reese Hoskins. Only one of these six other hitters, Jose Altuve, Nolan Arenado, Nelson Cruz, Marcel Ozuna, Giancarlo Stanton, and Joey Votto also had a June OPS over 1,000. Who was it? Only Nelson Cruz got above the 1,000 mark out of those six hitters. 
finishing the month third in OPS at 1144. The rest of them fell a little short. Altuve at 9.82, Arenado at 9.33, Ozuna 9.51, Stanton at 9.50, and Votto at 9.59. Question 2. Yoan Moncada led one stat category by a huge margin. What was it? Moncato struck out 45 times in the month, six more than Brandon Nimmo. By contrast, Ender Inciarte fanned just nine times, and Joe Panic just seven. Question three. In what category did Lewis Brinson and Ketel Marte tie for the lead in June? Brinson and Marte each had four triples in the month. Question four. Six hitters drew 20 or more walks in June. Joey Votto, Mike Trout, Max Muncie, and Jose Ramirez were four of the six. Who were the other two? The other two hitters with 20 or more walks in June were Carlos Santana, who had 28, which tied him with Votto for the lead, and Shinsu Chu, who had 20. Question five. Among batters with 100 or more plate appearances in June, who drew the fewest walks? Josh Harrison, D. Gordon, and Sal Perez had just two walks each, twice as many as Kevin Pillar. Question six. George Springer and Manny Machado led batters with seven each. Of what? Springer and Machado both grounded into seven double plays, tied with Janjavers Solarte for the most in June. Question 7. Matt Olson was at 23% of his fly balls and Gorkis Hernandez was at 22%. But in which outcomes? Pop-ups as a percentage of fly balls or home runs as a percentage of fly balls? Ha! It's a trick question. Oddly enough, Olsen and Hernandez had the same percentages of fly balls become pop-ups and home runs. Question 8. Speaking of fly balls, who had the highest fly ball percentage in June? The Astros' Alex Bregman had a 61% fly ball rate, seven points higher than teammate Evan Gaddis and Max Muncie. The lowest fly ball percent was John Jay, who got just 11% of his batted balls into the air. Matt Duffy had 14% fly balls, still not that great, and a quarter of those were pop-ups. Question 9. Goldschmidt tied for the lead in June for hard-hit balls with which outfielder from the American League West? The other hard-hitter was the Angels' Justin Upton. Both he and Goldie smacked the horsehide, that's sports writer lingo, to the tune of a 59% hard hit rate. Nick Marcakis was third at 58%. The lowest was D. Gordon at just 17% hard hit balls. And question 10. Delino DeShields tied for fifth place in June with six stolen bases, but led one other category with six, what? DeShields paired his six swipes with six bunt hits, best in the game for June. 
Other small ball artistes included Rugnette Odor, who had four, and Javier Baez and Dee Gordon, who had three bunt hits apiece. Let's move on to starting pitchers. Question one. 35 starters had six starts apiece in June. Four of them, Jason Hamill, Ian Kennedy, Zach Wheeler, and Nick Pavetta, distinguished themselves in a particular way. How did these four starters stand out from the crowd of six start pitchers? All four of these starters went winless in their six starts. Question two. Two starters won all five of their June starts. John Lester was one of them. Who was the other? The other starter to win all five of his starts was Zach Eflin of the Phillies. Question three. Among starters with 20 or more innings, who led the June DOM rate at 14.9 strikeouts per nine, but started July off his team's 25-man roster? Colorado starter John Gray had 43 whiffs in his 27 innings, but a 42% hit rate and 62% strand rate contributed to a 6 ERA 152 whip and earned Gray a trip to AAA. By the way, John Lester had a 17% hit rate and a 95% strand rate in the month, which probably contributed to his fine decimals of a 113 ERA and 084 whip. I'm not saying sell high, I'm just saying. Question four, put these starters who had four or more starts apiece in order of ERA from best to worst. Tyler Anderson, Tyler Chatwood, Tyler Male, Tyler Skaggs. Skaggs actually had the best ERA of anybody in the month among starters at 0.89. Then came Male in 14th spot at 2.18, Anderson 57th at 3.52, and Chatwood 104th at 5.40. The worst ERA for June belonged to Daniel Mengden, 134th out of 134 starters with an 11.57 ERA. Question 5. Which almost entirely undrafted starting pitcher had 30 strikeouts in 29 innings and just one walk? Well, a lot of people are going to get this one. The 30.0 command ratio belonged to L.A. starter Ross Stripling. He's made a lot of the news lately. The other double-digit command for the month, by the way, was a 10.0, hurled by Atlanta starter Brandon McCarthy. Question 6. Which starting pitcher surrendered the most home runs in June, allowing 10 big flies in just 29 innings? The master gopher baller was Jacob Junis of Kansas City. His home run per nine was 3.1. Interestingly, Junis's 23% home run for flyball rate was only the 14th highest in June, miles back of the 36% homer for flyball rates posted by Chad Bettis and Eric Fetty. Question seven. Not surprisingly, Junis led baseball in allowing hard contact. 53% of his balls in play were scorched by opposing hitters. Which starters, one grizzled veteran and one raw rookie, were tied for second in allowing hard-hit balls as a percentage of balls in play? The two shell-shocked starters were veteran Bartolo Colon and rookie Frankie Montas, both of whom allowed 51% hard-hit balls in play. 
The lowest hard hit percentage was 20% by the aforementioned Zach Eflin of Philadelphia, just ahead of Andrew Kashner, Tyler Chatwood, Brent Suter, and Marco Estrada. Finally, on to the relievers. Question 1. Toronto reliever Seung Hwan Oh tied for third in vulture wins with three. Oh also led all relievers in what other stat? Oh led all of baseball with three blown saves. Thirteen relievers had two blown saves apiece. The vulture win leaders were Lou Trevino of Oakland and Justin Miller of Washington, who had four wins each. Oh and Reyes Montana of San Francisco were tied with those three. Question 2. Among all 78 relievers who faced at least 50 batters in June, what didn't Matt Grace do that made him a standout? Grace pitched in 10 games, faced 52 batters, and didn't issue any walks, hit by pitches, or wild pitches. Question 3. Again among relievers with 50 or more total batters faced, what was unusual about the command ratios of Bruce Rondon, Brian Shaw, Hector Santiago, Miguel Castro, and Randy Rosario? Well, calling it command might be a bit misleading. All five of those relievers had more walks than strikeouts, therefore command ratios under 1.0. Brett Cecil, Eliezer Hernandez, and Dylan Floro came close, with command ratios of exactly 1.0 the same number of walks as K's. And that's the quiz for June. See you in a month, unless the management tells me to do some actual work. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt, Master Notes columnist at BaseballHQ.com. You can get Master Notes delivered to your email inbox in the weekly free Baseball HQ e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. You can also read Master Notes for free at the Baseball HQ website. And of course, we also have Master Notes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, July the 6th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 24 of the 2018 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guest for this Friday edition of our show, Ray Murphy, the co-general manager and columnist at BaseballHQ.com. Ray's a terrific fantasy baseball player. He's a magician with the Baseball HQ site. You wouldn't believe what goes on behind the scenes. And he's a great guy to boot. Maybe you'll find out if you come out to First Pitch Arizona this year. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson. Our Minor League Minute was presented by Baseball HQ Minor Leagues analyst Rob Gordon. And our frequent flyer commentator was Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. Thanks as well to Todd Zola, our guest on Talk with Todd. I'm Patrick Davitt, Master Notes commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. And remember, you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. You can also follow me on my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. More importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes or Stitcher or Pocket Cast, wherever you get your pods, and leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and rating. It really does help us find new listeners, and that really does help us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next Friday with another edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. 
and so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.